I don't know if we ever described it as a roguelike. You sure. Um, I think we did in the marketing talk. Yeah. I think within the breach, we, we've completely avoided the word sure. roguelike. Um, I think it's a contentious term yeah. that's not really worth <laughs> using, yeah. especially now. That's why um, I want to tease it out. Like, what are, what are the yeah, actual for, elements of that that are For me, to which is not well, what is the Berlin interpretation, yes, right. I, I, is not necessarily something I, I hang anything Very on. Very 16th century Reformation <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game developer Matthew Davis, best known for his work on FDL and Into the Breach. This episode was recorded on September 19th, 2022, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. Cool. All right, so where I usually start out with is... What's the what's the very first video game that you can remember? I'm not sure. I have very very vague memories of the original NES, with like um, the original Zelda and the original Mario. Like I'm talking preschool memories that, that basically don't remember the game. And right. I think my dad brought home a. We were, we were lucky enough to get like a desktop pretty early, and I remember weird games like little 2D basketball thing. It was all like the green screen. You know, it was just green or black, and. Um, uh, that, those were the earliest. I always remember loving them, though, from the from the from the very beginning. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so how did so how did your basically the sort of shortcut of like how your video game times began, right? You yeah. had a you had a, an NES and I you know I'm not, I can't even say for hundred percent that we actually had an NES. Okay. I remember the memories of it were playing at friends' houses and cousins' houses and stuff. We right. definitely had a Super Nintendo. And in terms of like the objective, like this is why I make games and I truly fell in love with them was via the Super Nintendo, okay. which was a little bit more my generation. Okay. Um, so what, what did you what did you play? What were the games that made a difference to you? Games like, um, I mean, the same ones everyone's played. Not <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> that true. I, I, I didn't have a Super Nintendo. I didn't play those games. Sure, so. the people going up to Super Nintendo, though. It's, it's yeah. your Mario Karts and your Super Mario Worlds. I still think Super Mario World is an absolute perfect game. Right. Um, I, my, my siblings and I played a ton of Mario Kart. Um, Secret of Mana was a huge one for me and kind of began a love of RPGs. Um, and yeah, early memories of playing with my brother and waking up early to play Secret of Mana. He was five years older, so he was um, desperate to sleep and I was desperate to play. Right. And um, yeah, I, I moved on to PC games pretty quick too as well though. Like Super Nintendo was definitely not the, the, the only one. I always split between the consoles. I moved up through the Nintendo consoles, but then I was always playing PC games. And I, the early CRPGs, not super early, the, the more the 90s classics of right. Baldur's Gate and Planescape and Fallout and, and those games, as well as the early Blizzard games like um, the Warcraft series, Diablo, the first one, right. um, and Starcraft would all be massive, like the beginnings of me being really into games. Did you not have consoles at all growing up then? Uh, we, had, uh, we had an NES um, and just a handful of games, you know, your Zelda and Mario and remember we had RC Program, I really liked that game. Um, and then, but I grew up on a, with a Commodore 64 and then we got an Amiga, I basically, you know, 
but you know, scrounged together enough money to like buy an Amiga 500 myself, um, and had a Mac. So I was, I was just a PC, PC game guy. Yeah. yeah. I completely missed basically all the whole consoles after yeah. my next console after that would have been like an Xbox I barely played. Right. So <laughs> it was a big, I missed a lot of, I missed a lot of games. Um, yeah. But, um, so what, so what RPGs were kind of like, RPGs I love. I remember like or the the second Fallout was one that sticks in my mind as like a, this was it blew my my mind. It probably didn't help that I was too young to play it, <laughs> and, right, the, and okay. the, the violence and sex and stuff probably made it all feel more illicit and exciting to me. Right. Not really tickling the game designer brain, but tickling just the getting to do something like this. Um, my parents were. Um, not super on top of games and what were in them. So my brother and I were able to play a lot of things that maybe they wouldn't have even let us play had they known. How are, how are you getting your games? Um, um, they buy them for they us. Buy, so you, they you just would, didn't dig into it that deeply. Yeah. Would you <laughs> get like game magazines and is that how you figure out like what Fallout was? You know, I think about that now today and I try to remember how on earth I used to hear about games. Because like looking back, I played all the stuff that people considered those those classics yeah but there was no twitter and and right and blogs to tell me what the classics were so i don't really have a strong <laughs> memory of why yep. there was a lot of coming across just like going down to the game store and looking at the boxes sure. and being like that looks and once you know you like Baldur's gate then you see okay that looks like Baldur's gate like yeah that's a sure is it isometric rpg let's just keep buying any isometric there are definitely bad ones they played too yeah and those just probably forgot about yeah, yeah the trips to the game store were hugely important yeah. for, for me as well although like the pc section kept getting smaller and smaller so it was like less and less useful especially um, the, the huge boxes were right, yeah, huge. they made it all more dramatic yeah and then they're like you know like thief would be like we're gonna make this weird shaped box we and it's like it's like why is this happening <laughs> This is so stupid. And they would stack up. We wouldn't let my parents fill them out. So the the closet that had yeah. the computer in it was full of the massive game boxes. Yeah, I still had to kind of deal with. There's a few I have a hard time partying with, um, and it's just not. <laughs> At this point, not great. I don't think I've got any left. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sad. <laughs> cool. Um, so you know, you liked RPGs. It, um, I mean, can you explain kind of like what what sucked you into that? Um, I've always been into the theme side of video games. I like the design side. The The, the frustrating part is I like them both a lot. I, sure. I like a game that's got complex, interesting design, but I also like a game that does that with a really strong theme, with mm -hmm. the design elements kind of tied together with the theme in really interesting, unique ways. Um, and the role-playing aspect of games in stuff like the Fallout series, um, it, it was that kind of feeling of being in that story and and getting to make your choices and the game responding to the choices you were making. Right. You can play the stealthy, going back and replaying it five times because when you're little and you've got the time to do that. Sure. Then yeah. you can play it five times and play it with five different characters and play it with characters that don't make any sense. But then it's fun to see all the ways that the game does make sense, even though you're playing it with a way that they wouldn't have expected. Or that when you're that age, you think they don't expect. Right. And um, there, was, there was just a magic to it on the RPG side like that. Yeah, Fallout stuck out to me because I felt like it was like one of the first games where they um, really put in the work to like figure out all the different things you could possibly do and say, and um, you know the choices you made really mattered. You know, like it was it was kind of hard to see the designer's hand because there was so many so much flexibility in the game. It, it was yeah, and at the age I played it, you probably came at it from the benefit of having 
more context to right. like what RPGs were. Right. And so you can see that and respect it and like look at this is the next level up to see right. the sorts of choices they're giving you. Since I was younger and that was kind of my first introduction to the genre, like it was they came fully fledged as this amazing magical object right. that I didn't get to quite see the workings of it or appreciate the workings of it until I was older. Yeah. I mean the the contrast for me would have been, you know, I you know, would have played games like Bard's Tale or Dungeon Keeper or whatever, which are just very mechanical, you know, just very light story, mechanical. They're, they had great settings, but, you know, you didn't really have narrative choices. And then I also would play D&D, which is full of, you know, it's just full of all sorts of stuff depending upon how good the Dungeon Master is. Yeah. And it felt like there weren't, it was like impossible to make a video game that tried to actually deliver that. Right? Yeah, you no. Know? And it arguably still is, but right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Fallout made a good stab at it, although it's it's weird because I don't really feel like it got followed up well. Like it's still such a hard problem that a lot of people don't really try to do it well. I think it's it's been a frustration that I loved those games growing up, and then I feel like specifically the the CRPG genre, the asymm- your classic asymmetric ones, kind of fell out of favor. Right. And then we never really came back to them. But then when we did, like I love the. Um, Oh, I'm forgetting Pillows of Eternity games. Yeah, I really enjoyed them. Yeah, but they were very much doing those games. Right, and there hasn't been all that much like evolution expansion. Like, where else can games like these go? Maybe it was stuck, and that's what we've got. I loved them anyway. Yeah. Um, and on the on the tabletop RPG side, I think it's interesting that I don't actually like tabletop RPGs. Okay. I want to like them, and sure. every time I play them, I'm like eager to try it and properly. But I think I'm more. I'm too much of a mechanics person. What? Yeah. What don't you like about them? I I, I can't put my finger on it, but I I like the structure of an actual video game. Like I like the design constraints and I like finding, like when you play, when I play a game like Fallout or whatever, um, I like finding all the ways you can solve the quest. Right. And in many ways, completing the game in that sense of finding every corner, finding the places that you can use the skill to do that. And the completely open nature and pure narrative driven, like Mm -hmm. qualities of a tabletop RPG, it feels it's not as much what my brain is looking for, I guess. Right. I can't really put my finger on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because some people that's, you know, they, they hit the, because you can't hit the limit to Fallout, right? You will at some point, yeah, if you find all the dialogue options and try all the different different alternatives, and you know, like it is possible to to do that where that's not possible with a you know a tabletop game, yeah. or they they have, but that could be a a good thing just depending upon where you're coming yeah. from. It's like a puzzle box that you're right. you're just kind of exploring the space that's been created, yep. and it's fun to explore it and all the different ways it can be explored and find all the different things, but it's not necessarily. And for some reason, it doesn't ruin the magic in a sense, because you would think that also, once it becomes a pure mechanical game, you've stopped that kind of narrative magic. Um, but I still find enjoyment in seeing it behind the scenes as well, I guess. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, what? So what else uh, What else were you playing? Like, what else was going on during this um, Like, the, you know, as I mentioned, the early Blizzard games. Yeah. Um, I had a ton of time going like, PC cafes back when they were still a thing. Oh, wow. Um, okay. With my brother... And playing like Warcraft 2 and Starcraft and Command and Conquer, not Blizzard, but same. Right. Um, That's interesting because I always, I guess I never saw them in the US that that was as much of a thing. um, I mean, I knew they were always big in Asia and other parts of the the world, but. They very briefly tried to be a thing. Okay. Um, And it happened to line up perfectly, at least where I grew up, um, between like. 
95 to 2005, which right. was like my middle school through high school. Right. Um, there were, like the one I used to go to my brother, we had to drive like 25 minutes to get there. Wow. But it was still easier to do that than to pick up your PC. Like we would do that too and, and lug PCs to a friend's house and do like LAN parties. Oh, I see. Because the, you, you couldn't play online. You had to be... Well, yeah, online definitely wasn't as, as, as easy be, to do yeah, as, sure. it, as, it, as it is now. No, I remember the early days of online and how magical that was. But um, it was definitely, it's more fun to play in person. And yeah, same with sure. the board games, are, you know, it, the, the community aspect is, yeah, it, sure. is a huge part of it. We would, yeah. we would lug, so I was in high school in the early 90s, and we would have parties where we'd lug all our computers together and play stuff, but we weren't even connecting them. We, we were just playing games next to each other, basically. <laughs> so, like, the communal aspect was still, like, always, like, yeah. really, really nice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess it's cool to hear that. So, you know, you guys would go, you would go there, you'd play RTS games. A lot of RTS games, other. some FPS games, but definitely more focused on RTS games. Um, I, I loved all the early Blizzard RTSs. And... Did you get really competitive? Like, did you get good? No, I never went into like, <laughs> okay. or, or, but that was before, I think like outside of Korea, I don't think there was a competitive StarCraft yeah. scene. Right. Um, I guess, I guess what I mean is <laughs> there's different ways to play those games. Like some people it's like the, the point is I'm trying to get as good as possible. Yes. Playing all the strats. And, and, and memorizing your build order and, yep. and going through the whole thing. No, it was never, it was always more social and, and fun. I was competitive with my brother as one tends to be with siblings. Sure. Um, okay, and, yeah. and I've always been, I was more competitive when I was younger and it's an urge I have to suppress, I would say. <laughs> um, but it was never out of like a, I need to find mastery of the game. Like right. it, it was just, I want to have fun and also obviously beat the people I'm with. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, okay, at this point, did you, so you know, at this point you're like in middle school, getting to high school. Um, did you think at all about making video games? Um, as a profession, no. I, I poked at them in like the ways that anyone does with, with not modding, but like poking it, hacking and breaking games to kind of, cause you're having fun and you're cheating and stuff. Not right. like in the, I'm designing it. Um, I remember making crappy little calculator games on the TI. Oh yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Playing them and making yeah. them. <laughs> um. That would be a shared um, generation thing probably between us because for some reason those didn't change for for Right, years. yeah, it's true. Those were like, those were always the same until they suddenly completely died because now kids don't have to get them anymore. So, yeah. because it was kind of ridiculous. Um, but, okay, what would you what would you make? I, I think I made like stupid choose your own adventures and stuff in them. Right. And other, it's been just so long since I've done that, but it, it, it was, yeah. And in, in computer science, I was lucky enough that my high school had a computer science class. Okay. And um, we... I, we had to make a game for the final project for that. Okay. And I made a um, Scorched Earth-like. Okay. <laughs> what was Scorched Earth was um, cannons, like worms. Okay. Um, okay. Shooting back, taking turns, setting up your trajectory, doing the arc um, for a game. Yeah, Scorched Earth predated worms for quite a bit. Okay. That's an old one. It would have actually been more on your side of things, I think. Right. But um, I always loved it. I always loved worms, too. Right. And when we were tasked to make a game, I thought it'd be fun to make that. And so we, we did. It was really silly and, and simple. It was not exactly a, a complex game design achievement. Sure. Um, but it was the, again, the beginning, the early days, I suppose, of me poking at games. But I very much, when I decided to go into computer science, it never came from like a, I want to make games and that's why I want to be a programmer. Right. It was, programming seems fun and a reliable way to have a career. So let's just do that. Right. Okay. Yeah, it was boring. Yeah, I mean, can you can you think back now why you didn't make the connection? Um, 
No, I mean, I had the connection. I've always, it was always on my mind as like, it could lead down that path. Right. Like it, um, programming doesn't lock that door. Right. Sure. Of course. But it's not that I'm looking to open that door. Like right. it, it was, and at that day, um, I was also interested in maybe chasing down, I had not done anything, but stuff with 3D animation and 3D graphics and maybe on the movie side versus the game side, I've always also absolutely adored film. Right. And, um, and so it kind of just was a, this opens up a ton of doors and I don't know which ones I'm going to walk through, but we'll see how it goes once we get there. Okay, cool. Yeah. And my brother, I mean, he's going to keep coming up, I guess, was a programmer. Okay. And him being five years older than me, he went through university and was working as an engineer before he even went to college. And I can't imagine that that wasn't also. Oh, that's right. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So where, where'd you go to school? Um, UC Berkeley. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you kind of knew you wanted to, you compute, you wanted, you knew you wanted to do computer science from the very beginning. Yes. Yeah, right? Went into computer science, never had doubts in computer science, considered dual majoring cause I was crazy and thought that university wasn't enough work, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, I yeah. actually tried to dual major very briefly on like, a, I guess the, the, the thing you do as an, as a, as a youth that you, you optimistically try to do something silly and, um, looked into like film Okay. Studies or various film related because it was an interest. Mm -hmm. um, it was all packed out with huge waiting lists though for even like the intro courses. Oh, really? And so oh, it geez. was not something that was feasible. And so I quickly dropped that um, and decided to just stick to programming. Do you think you would have taken like video game classes if they had existed at the uh, time? I don't know. It's a good question. I wonder if Berkeley offers video game classes now. Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're spraying Most so of them do. Yeah, we worked for with Into the Breach expansion to jump ahead far into the future. Right. We worked with a student. Um, she did the one of the new pilots in the game, and she was working at SC, um, studying at SC yep. as a video game something. They've got a whole... Yeah, they have a they have a school program there. Yeah. yeah, and I I was I I'm ignorant on all of that, so yeah. I'm shocked. And it was cool to hear from her and talk about like with the program and everything because it was yeah it's amazing. Yeah, it's very different than when we went to school. But yeah, it was not something that was on the table. I mean, I assume film like video game studies are probably somewhat equivalent to film studies in that you know they're newer programs, you know, and they're you know they kind of la they lag a little bit behind where when the cultural interest is there but once they're there i would assume they're pretty popular i would assume sc <laughs> could put together a decent program that would be pretty popular yeah yeah right and i'm sure a lot of the major schools are doing it now right right would you have done games in college would i have done games in college um good question um i don't think i would have gone to a game school because i still because i didn't when i was when i left high school i didn't um i didn't think I don't know. It's super, it's super weird to think back because I remember when I was maybe seventh, sixth or seventh grade, the teacher did one of these things like, Hey, plan out your, plan out your life, right? Like, you know, imagine what you would do. And I remember I literally wrote down, you know, like when I'm 40 CEO of electronic arts, right? <laughs> that was, because that was my just idea of like, well, okay, if I'm going to go make video games, that's, that's the, obviously know, that, that's the way you that's, go. That's yeah. where, that's what you want to do. Um, and, uh, so I, it was, you know, obviously it was somehow in my brain, but it, you know, is, you know, as a garbled teenager who didn't really know what was going on. And, you know, when I went to school, I didn't even know to start taking computer science because I didn't know what the word computer science meant. I knew programming. I did programming. I taught myself a lot of programming, but computer science sounded like 
you know, I don't know, is that electrical engineering or something? Or like, you know, then I've discovered like, oh, okay, it's just it's programming. programming. Right. That always so bothered fancy. me, they, computer science and software engineering, and they, they come up with all these ways of putting a fancier title on it. On programming. Um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with calling it programming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, I got into the industry basically because I had a friend who had an internship at EA and like, then it was, and it, it really just took, and I had been, I had been bending all, a lot of my courses at, at school, I, I bent them into making some sort of video mm -hmm, game. Mm -hmm. Like I was also a history major and I'm, instead of writing a big paper for my final project, I made this simulation of life as like a shopkeeper in England cool. in like the early modern period. Right. And so like, obviously I was like going this direction. I just didn't know how to get there or what to do about it. Right. Um, and this comes up a lot in these, these podcasts, right? Like people's perception of, could they be, could they get into video games for a lot of people? They just didn't think about it, even though they're, you can see they're putting together all of the building blocks like, oh yeah, well I did teach myself to program <laughs> and I did mod these games and I build, build these levels and oh yeah, I was sharing it online and I was, you know, doing all these things, but and yeah, I didn't think I was trying to become a video game developer, right? It's you just know? fun. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, you learn so much more that way anyway, when it's not like I'm going to sit down and focus on studies. It was the thing you did to not study. Right. And so, yeah, in, in hindsight, that's obvious. The thing you did to not study was probably the thing you should be doing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely, it, there was an aspect, at least by the time I was going to school, that the industry was also already at its peak, like, mm -hmm. almost you shouldn't do it. Like it was the oh really EA, I, what, I, I EA wife have, or whatever the oh EA spouse thing spouse yeah. thing yep. and um, all that the, the crunch and the, when the big studios and, huh. and the churn and you already knew that it was you felt like every guy in CS and girl in CS wanted to do um, right this games. is a competitive industry it's, you have to work horrible hours and, and, and it, it doesn't sound pleasant and and um, the pay is is terrible compared to anything else you can do with programming right. And that's, it's honestly, that's really interesting to hear that, that that would have been kind of like the perception at the time in the late, the late aughts or whatever we call them. Um, my, and my perception obviously could have been wrong, but yeah. that was the Well, no, I mean, I that was, having, yeah. there was a lot of that going on. I just, it's interesting that's the perception because for a lot of people, they just go into video games with starry eyes, you know, and they don't think about like yeah. the, the problems with the industry. Right? I guess it was, it was the benefit of um, definitely being very fully in the internet era by that time. Yeah, and right. so you were seeing a lot more of the discussion, I guess, online of, of how horrible it could be to work in games. Um, and I definitely knew even in college when I would think about games, um, the independent development was always high on the list of potential for me right. in terms of things I would be interested in. And a friend and I uh, um, used to kind of make little prototypes together and we'd talk about making games in, in terms of just independent development in right. the future. What was your model for that? To say that like you could do independent, because I didn't, you know, I came out of school in the late nineties. There wasn't, I mean, there should have been because things like it is sort of an independent development, but like there wasn't really what I would think of as like an independent model because how would, even if you make a game, how would you sell it? Right? Yes. Like, oh, yeah, for sure. And it was early days in that scene as well. And it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly what it would have been. But um, it's because you were hearing all the horrible stories about the studio life, there was already the murmurings and discussions of the independent stuff. And I think World of Goo came out when I was in my last university. university. Okay. Um, and they were just a team of two, I Rip. think, from mm -hmm. World of Goo. Yep. And so there was at least one example of, look, these people did that with two people and you can do it. This is possible, right? Um, and I've always been a relatively 
um, independent doesn't work well with others sort okay. when it comes to the, the <laughs> projects. Right. And so I, the, the getting into the big cog versus just doing what those guys did yeah. was always... Um, How did yeah. you know that when you're 22 or whatever? Because you wouldn't have been on like a big team or something. Well, no, yeah, you're not on a big team, but you were doing enough group projects. That right. You, <laughs> <laughs> um, in general, like, you know, you, you get a vibe of your own social capabilities by the right. time you get to that point. Um, yeah. and, I, and I never thought I would like and did not like when I engaged with the office life and like normal, right. normal work like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what did you do then when you graduated? I went and got a job at a AAA studio. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering because I know that was coming here somewhere. So, like, uh, um, yeah, let's you know, talk about that. It's hard to. I've always also been a very responsible, risk-averse person. Right. Um, and so I, I went to university and did what I was supposed to do and get it, get it studied in the field that I knew would get me jobs, no matter what I wanted to chase down. It was easy to get a job as a programmer. Yep. Just you know, the nice, reliable path, not the I'm going to do art and then be an artist that is a yep. lot more pie in the sky type thinking. Um, and so when it actually came down to um, choosing a career, um, I went the safer route. And when it came to programming, actually by that point kind of didn't like programming as much. Okay. Programming for the sake of programming sure. was no longer appealing. Right. Um, and so I thought it was kind of a Hail Mary to use my degree of like, maybe if I'm making things I think are interesting, right. then programming will be more interesting. Um, because up until then, like, Part-time jobs and stuff were just your typical software yep. that is just not at all interesting to work on. For me, there's some yep. people who love to code. I don't, yep. I, you, you, I don't love to code. I just code to make games. Yeah, I had a bunch of internships over you know my college years, and they were fine, right? But it was not, you know, yeah. it's not particularly enjoyable. It's it, a job. It's a know? job, and it's not the worst yep. job. There's it's definitely worse jobs. Intellectually challenging and yep. interesting and whatnot, but I'm not, and I'm never the type to get distracted by when I'm programming to be like, oh, wait, I need to go spend two weeks optimizing this because I love the technical challenge. Right. <laughs> I've definitely worked with like my friend in college we started with some independent design back then. He loves the tech and he will yep. get distracted and he would love to just kind of work on his own engine or his own tech for ages and I've never been that person. Yeah. And so at, presented with a, you're going to go into the field of computer of, of programming and um, I figured games was a decent choice. Yep. And I went to GDC um, where they do a job fair. They used to do a mm -hmm. job fair for yep. students and the like. Um, and I lined up with every other student that was desperate to get into the game industry and right. handing over resumes onto stacks of 50. Right. And everybody just is, is there trying to do the exact same thing. And again, you're just very aware of the hopelessness of the situation. Right. Um, and it was at 2K, at the 2K booth, that the um, um, woman taking the resumes and stuff said that they're, they're looking for people in China. Right. And so if you write down that you'd be interested in China, then you might be more likely to get a call okay, right. And like it was just this one wasn't even really a resume so much as a sheet of paper that you put your name and email address on. Right. Um, and Will uh, ship to China. And I put on the on the <laughs> margins of it, China, yay. And like no one else had China down on that. Oh, no wow. one's willing to move out to yeah. China, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, within like a month, I had a job then. It wow. was, I got called very quickly. The studio, I don't get the impression, had a lot of takers. 
Um, and, and you you made that decision just on the spot. Like you're like I, I mean you I, presumably had not thought about China all that much until then. No, not even a little bit. No, I had definitely no um, aspirations to move to China before that moment. I did have aspirations to go abroad. I spent a year studying abroad. Um, okay, cool. When, when I didn't get the double major thing to work, mm -hmm. um, another way to make college life more interesting, I thought, was to do a uh, study abroad. And so I spent a year in, in Ireland and Europe. Okay, cool. Um, and that kind of turned me on to that lifestyle and being an expat, being abroad. And so I was definitely open to that, looking for that. Like, I really thought working for... Um, CCP in Iceland? Oh, yeah. Not okay. CCP. Is yeah, it, yeah it's is CCP, CCP and yeah, the Eve people, yeah. Would have been amazing. Sure. Um, Iceland's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There were definitely some amazing choices that when you're romanticizing at that age, um, and, and China wasn't on that list, right. but it was a possibility, and it turned out to be uh, brilliant. So it was it was definitely a weird way to go about things. Wow. Kind of, it, it's against, it's the risk averse where I'm going to go get a normal job at an established studio, but I guess risk tolerance for, but I'm going to do it in China. Yeah, there's a lot of vectors here going yeah. in different directions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I was actually probably, wait, what year would this be? That would have been 2008. Okay, yeah. all right. I just left Take Two <laughs> the oh, year really? before, yeah. Um, and okay, because I remember they were starting stuff up in China. Yeah. Because it was just, it was the content stuff, basically. We need people to make content for us. Yeah, um, it was, they had the content stuff. And they had the kind of the outsourcing studio thing over there. Yeah. But then they were also kind of looking to grow into more um, proper studio work. Right. And they were looking for more programmers um, from, like, it was definitely the UC Berkeley on my resume that got me yeah. a job. Like, that was, they were looking for that sort of thing to come over and be part of the programming staff and expand the studio um, with talent and also diverse points of view and stuff. Um, right. And not just what they had locally. Um, and there were maybe... Uh, Half a dozen other foreigners in the studio. Okay, how big um, was the studio? Um, it had two floors. Okay, one of which in the in the big high rise. I don't know how many people were actually there. Um, one of the floors was exclusively like the outsourcing um, art right. segment. They were turning out assets for like Bioshock and stuff at the yeah. time. Um, in fact, Justin was at 2K, which we can get to. But he yep. he had some hand on some of the maps and stuff because he was also um, tasked onto some of those things and. Other than that, though, it was actually pretty small teams. Like, my very first game was MLB 2K, and I embarrassingly couldn't even tell you which one it was. <laughs> okay. Um, for the Wii. It was, it was that version. Oh, that. wow. Okay. And, um, but there was only, like, four of us on the programming side. Okay. Um, despite it being a pretty large studio, there's a lot of, like, doing ports like that. And so we were given relatively smaller teams to do that port. So the and game, you, there already was a game, and you guys just needed to get working on the Wii. You're handed this massive code base yeah. that's existed, you can tell, probably since, at least pieces of it, since the 90s, in terms of how old some of it yeah. was. None of it's documented. <laughs> None of it's commented. None of it's... There's, there's old... Um, like the old studios that worked on MLB over the years, like will have random structures and, and class names and like yep. engine pieces in there scattered throughout. It's a fascinating project if you are purely looking for like code archaeology and games. Right. <laughs> MLB in 2008 would have been an interesting one. Yep. Um, as a very first game it's project. Like trying to sort through someone's garage or something that you don't know. Yeah. Right. And just making those couple changes that you need to get motion controls like fitting. Right. Right, because that's actually it's not like you're just porting to a random device. You're port. You have to actually make 
changes to, to the this, this, this system. Yeah, and the making the UI changes and the control changes. I was always on the gameplay side of things, not like the making it run on the system side of things. Right. Um, and So were you like handling like swinging the bat and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. Did, I did this tutorial. I was, I was really proud of like just getting full control over you go do the tutorial. Right. I, you know, I'm brand new in games. I've never really done anything professional. I'm getting to make the tutorial to an MLB 2K game. Not really my genre or type of game, but still exciting to be there and doing that. And being in the studio, I remember being exciting, like, you know, seeing people doing art assets on the computer, just being, and I'm sure you remember the, the first the beginning. time. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the same, I'm sure for many of us. Um, and so that excitement on its own was enough to at least, even though sports games weren't my thing, it was um, it was exciting, fun. Right. Yeah. And cool. nice, nice coworkers, nice studio. Right. No crunch. Really. Okay. Everyone showed up on time and left on time. So you said there was just a handful of of I guess Americans or non Chinese. Yeah. So most of the people you're working with were Chinese. Um. Yeah. The vast majority were Chinese. Like, like the rest of your programming team was Chinese. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And uh, my I I don't speak Chinese. I did spend some time studying it over there, but I'm terrible languages and I was a lot more focused on games and making games and programming and that exciting part of my life yep. rather than also trying to pick up a really difficult second language. So did the developers um, speak English? Most of the developers spoke English. The okay. lead developers spoke quite good English. Um, um, some of the, the, like the outsourcing artists, you'd struggle a bit more or I would struggle, which would be entirely my fault, not theirs, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the weirdo that showed up, didn't know how to speak the language. Right. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, but everyone was super nice and welcoming and yeah, they invited me to play board games. Um, cool. And they were all really into board games and it's just me to like the local board game shops and stuff. Like, like Euro board games? Yeah. Those type of things? Yeah. Really? They were playing like Carcassonne. Really? Yeah. Okay. Like on great. lunch breaks, they would play Carcassonne. Wow. And um, there was a, like a board game cafe, uh -huh. like just across the street. Is this in, is this Shanghai? Shanghai. Yeah. Okay. Um, just across the street from the studio. It was up in like an apartment building. You had to uh -huh. go up an apartment building in like some dude's apartment. They'd set up a board game cafe that the walls were covered in board games and you could pick out games and play them and stuff. And we'd go do that. Um, after work or and whatnot and it was it was cool it was if anything a bigger influence than anything else in getting into the game industry was i'd always liked board games but i had never really taken the time to like really dive into the larger more hardcore yep. world of board games mm -hmm. and that was huge for me i love board games now okay what were the big ones that made a difference to you oh god in those uh, in that period i think it was more the variety that was exciting and right. like the fact I'd, i've always loved ever since i was little like reading the rules to board game was fun sure like yep. i love just the rules and mm -hmm. just the ability to constantly be pulling out new games and like reading new rules and diving into the mechanics of it was exciting all on its own once i was more um i guess in those early days even before i had met justin um the game of thrones board game oh okay have you ever played that one uh i i've been trying to learn it on like my computer people but... hate it or love it uh -huh. like okay. the one that you're placing tokens upside down so people don't know what you're doing okay because there's like a dozen game of thrones board games sure there. right I mean... it was the one this was before the tv show before yep. it was using just the ip from the books yeah um and... is it diplomacy-esque yeah, it's a big map and you're vying for control over the territories and there's a ton of betrayal since it's Game of Thrones. Right, sure. Um, yeah, and you know, I vividly remember a friend storming out of the apartment. It was that, <laughs> the sort of game that, that people flip tables on. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And it it was lovely. <laughs> I loved right. it. And just trying out all the games and playing with coworkers and playing with other expats in the area was a, was a big part of it. Yeah, 
I had a similar experience with board games during that, that phase where, you know, growing up it was, you know, risk and monopoly and yeah. whatever. Uh, and I randomly, you know, kind of discovered a bunch of, found some uh, old victory game and SBI war games. I don't know if you ever played Hex Encounter games. That would have been probably before your time. Yeah. It was really before my time. I just, <laughs> you know, found these things, like these crazy artifacts from another era. And But yeah, like just reading the rules was like a fascinating experience that to see how different games could be. And then the whole Euro game movement in that period, like, because every game could be different. You know, they shared some stuff, but, but especially video games were kind of really in a rut during that time, you know? So maybe, yeah, that it was a place to find more exciting design. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that was the, that was, that was really pre steam and, you know, to make a game, it had, you know, Best Buy or, you know, Target would only stock so many games. Right. So they, the game design tend to be fairly conservative. The teams were getting bigger. Um, so you just didn't have variety. Which is why you also sort of seen the indie movement come up. Right, stronger, yeah. Stronger. That's yeah. right. That's where it was coming from. Yeah. And But the board games were already ahead of the curve there because they had yeah. been doing this for yeah. 10 so plus years at that point. Um, so to me, it was like, wow, we need to be making games that feel like this. Like in a lot of ways, Offworld Training Company is like my... No, no, that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very transparent that. influence on that. Yeah. One. yeah, it's like okay, we can do the, we can do something really different in board game space. Let's do that in a video game space. Like, yeah. let's just take the combat of an RTS and see what happens. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, cool. All right. So yeah, you were. So I would love that you reminded me. I completely forgot about, but it would be right to mention that Hero Quest when I was little. Okay. Did you ever play Hero Quest? I know of it, but I haven't played it. And um, yeah, I, I loved Hero Quest as a kid. I'm making maps and making sure. weapons and making that was like probably my earliest. Um, game design experience experience and right. i love it because they recently did a reprint mm -hmm. um and i got it. i've got a seven-year-old son okay and um introducing him to hero quest and he's made maps and stuff and okay it's, it's fun to see him do the should same i stuff. should i get hero quest i've got i've got kids in that age range like i don't know your kids are a little bit older yeah are you do you guys play like dungeon callers and other uh like in on pc like on computer games no like but like descent they, they or so they assault or like board games that are well they have played D D with some friends but of course those aren't as tactical right i mean this is this is like a hex based right you know moving characters around a 3d type environment right thing right? hero quest is super simple though because it's from like the 80s okay right and it's, sure. it's just yeah. like a <laughs> it's just like a grid a square grid and it's just like roll three dice roll three dice it's the, the tactics level are incredibly minimal it's right. the one you actually have to bring a lot to the table more like an rpg okay. and they describe it as a game system on like the box okay um because they're always kind of wanted it i think to be D, &D adjacent okay if you play rules as written raw it's pretty dull game oh so what what but would you add on top of there's it, a then? simplicity of it that you can bring kind of the role-playing elements if people are trying to bring their character and having fun and laughing about it and talking yeah to the but and how does how does the game give you a framework for that like or is it it's just kids being a seven-year-old will do it anyway? Or? A bit of both, yeah. But there's an element of, like, you know, you, you, simple rules are almost a bigger invitation for adding to. Right. If you have a really complex layered yeah. system, shoving things into that is difficult. But if you just have a system where, like, here's a weapon, you roll three dice to hit the enemy. This other weapon, you roll two dice. Okay, well, that's simple. I could do a variation on that. I could make a weapon where you roll four dice if you're a kid. Right. But, um, or like angled attacks yep. or like limited use, like this sword breaks after five tries. Like you can, it's silly, simple stuff. But when you're a kid and when you're not really used to that world, it's, it's exciting and fun to play with. And the game being as simple as it is, I think does invite that and makes it so easy and fun to do and so fast to do. And you can just make stuff up as you're playing. Right. Um, and much like... If, 
closer to an RPG yeah, right. to, um, in, in its free form. But I guess the structure, more structured, like I preferred than the openness of an RPG. Sure. Okay. I wouldn't, I, I think there are plenty of um, excellent like dungeon crawler type yeah, board like, games, but I think you're more on, I get the impression you're more on the Euro game um, side. Right. Yeah. I've never really gotten a good dungeon crawler, or tried to get a good, good dungeon crawler. And so I've always been like, wonder which one would be the right one to get. I'm not even sure. Cause honestly, then it's not the best genre. <laughs> I've played a lot of them and I think they're fun and right. they're, and they're silly, but it's not like, I, I definitely prefer like the grand scale strategy of like Game of Thrones sure. to the dungeon crawler stuff. But as I said before, like I love theme and I love integrating theme together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the Euro game design leaves me a little dry. Sure. Sure. It kind of feels like you could have put any theme on top of this and yep. the theme isn't really here for anything. Yep. Um, and so that always leaves me feeling like I don't really want to. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky things with board with board games because there are some games I love, but I can clearly see that the theme is not particularly important. Yeah. Um, you know, occasionally you get a game like Diplomacy where it's like it's just this beautiful marriage of like you can tell it was just that was the whole point. The names on the box, it's exactly what the game's about, yeah. you know. Um yeah. and um, you know, it, it seems like it's 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 the highest goal to get to. Yeah, if and, when your mechanics and your theme all like mesh perfectly, it's right. magical. Yeah. yeah, I have a little a sort of mini rant I've given a, f- a few times about. There's, a, you have, I assume you played Ticket to Ride. Yep. Uh, so do you know what the story is of Ticket to Ride? I didn't know how to story. Okay. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think Ticket to Ride is about? Uh, you're running a railway company. You are not running a railway company. You're not Ticket to Ride. No, no. What you are doing is you're competing in a, a competition to cross the country. With it's a bit of a around the day world in eighty days story, really, where you're buying tickets. That's why it's called Ticket to Ride to cross the country from from like Seattle to Miami or Miami to you know Boston or or whatever. Like these are these these are the routes. But you're, you're competing buying. like different routes. It's not like one. Yeah, exactly. And you you're changing your route midway all the through. time. You're buying these random routes. You yeah. don't have a you don't have a presence no, on the board. That's a, it that makes no sense. Doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. Yes, like and, and beyond that, it's not like there wasn't an obvious theme that they could have choose, chosen. They're making a train game where you're you're buying routes, and also the routes you get, no one else can get that route. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that like you're the only person who can no, travel. No, no, it only makes sense if it's a company where like somehow you yeah. monopolize that. Route. So their theme, their their mechanics was was absolutely a railway empire building a game. And for some bizarre reason, well, maybe they loved the game, but then they really hate capitalism and <laughs> they didn't want to support it. And so they just thought, oh, I'm just going to rewrap this quickly. I'm not going to put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, it's 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 really, truly bizarre. The next, I don't know if you have Ticket to Ride, but like next time you crack it okay, open. We, just... we only have Ticket to Ride Junior right now because of my younger okay. kids. Um, and I've only played the, the proper one. Um, yeah. But read the first page, times, yeah. you know, that you usually ignore in the yeah, rule book of like, yeah. here's the story. But see, I don't though. I love reading that because I love the theme and I love yeah. when it all gets together. But I take it right I've only played in like board game meetup type yeah, situations. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I've never been the one to dig into it. That's it's so a funny. good example of just how, and then, then it's kind of like, okay, if you get this wrong, who owns the, the theme of the game? Because to me, like the players own the theme yeah. or the setting or whatever, because they'll tell you this is a railroad. The, the, they'll tell you this is a railway empire building game. That's and true. it doesn't matter what yeah. the designers say. Yeah. It's not the game they, they pretended they no, were making. Yeah. And, and the fantasy that the players are living. But I also feel like when it comes to like Ticket to Ride and a lot of Euro games, there's not a lot of players living a fantasy. Right. Yeah. I mean, context. right. Sure. There isn't the depth there. It's just a, like an interesting example. It's just a, a little bit. Yeah. 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 Like it's really, funny. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, on the theme subject for Eurogames, 
I remember being shocked, and I shouldn't have been. It was I'm dumb to be so blind. But I remember after a board game meetup once, I was talking to this guy um, about theming and games and how I don't love Euro games for themes. And he loves Euro games because of the themes. Okay. He loves yeah, being a, a railroad tycoon, or he loves Renaissance era gem merchanting. Like, yeah. That's his thing. Like he just he wants to experience that fantasy. Right. He has no interest in space marines or yeah. Um, which is, you know, fair. Those are dumb themes too. But it, yeah. it, it was still a surprise to hear that there are aficionados of the Euro side of game design yeah. that are also in it for the It's still there, there's for the certain, lumber. There's a certain question of how much effort you should put into your theme. But that doesn't mean even if it's low effort, you can still do a good job. So like to me, like the counter example for Ticket to Ride was I was just actually last night playing Battleline. Uh, have you ever played Battleline? No. Okay. So it's a, it's a Rainer Knizia game. Okay. And he, of course, is not particularly... Famous for he's famous for his mechanics, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, it's a game where you're kind of you, you have these nine nine flags in front of you, and you're kind of competing with your. It's a two player game, competing with your opponent for these flags, right? And you're trying to put down. Uh, you you have playing cards, and you're trying to put down like three of a kind, or a flush, or a straight, uh, and you're trying to get a better hand than the person on the other side of the flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, once you have that, you capture the flag, right? And and you, if you have a majority, you win the game or or whatever. But um, it's themed around uh, Greek Persian combat during the age of Alexander the Great, um, and so that the the best the top cards are elephants. Like the ten is an elephant, the one is like a like a skirmisher, right? Um, but the when you actually play the game, you put your you, you would put your highest cards in the middle because you want to win the, the flags in the middle are the most important because if you win three flags in a row, you win the game. Okay. And, you know, you put your lower cards on the ends and that's like literally how a battle would look like mm-hmm. in that era where, mm-hmm. you know, your, your skirmishers and slingers and archers are on, this, on, the, on the ends and, you know, you're kind of like more heavy troops are in the middle and they're trying to break through and, and so on. And, you know, the theme doesn't really matter that much, but he's still at least picked like it's the right arbitrary. the right theme for what is a very simple game yeah right um a game that was likely prototype with playing cards for sure no i mean like you can see it right it's yeah. like the cards are one through ten with six different suits so yeah. you can tell it started just with playing cards but that's when it, it's 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 nice when you have a strong theme even for something like that that it's nice to see the theme come out of the mechanics where you're creating, like you said, the army placement you would expect. But then it also works in the inverse is that new players to it are also given that hint of how to play the game. Yep. When they're playing the mechanics in a way that matches the theme. Yep. Um, And when the two don't mesh, you don't get that. And it's a huge benefit as well. Like silly stuff like the elephant being strongest um, is so beneficial as well to just quickly being learning the game and and using the game in the way that the game was meant to be used. Yep. Um, And and when you have a pure abstract game, you don't get any of those cheats to help guide the player. And a, and a thematically rich game, I think, makes it so easy to teach and so easy to introduce. And, yeah, and get yeah I, I totally agree. Because people are going to have to, at some level, when they're learning a game, they have to guess, you know, not I mean, what, not just what their strategy is, but kind of what how the how a rule is going to work. Yeah. They're going to remember it easier if it matches correctly. Yeah, if it's an intuitive, okay, I'm, I'm in a battle like and this. this sense, yeah, this makes sense. Yep. I don't need to worry about the abstract strategy here because yep. i don't even know it yet yep. but i can yep. pretend to be a battle commander and that makes sense yep yeah yep. cool all right well let's get back to <laughs> no no this is a great conversation let's we could just do to... board games if, right. if you'd like <laughs> um all right let's get back to china so you're making uh mlb the show 
Presumably you did a few ports and these type of things. Um, I think it was just MLB, and then from MLB we went on to Top Spin. Okay. Um, which was the tennis game for the Wii, and I think it was Top Spin Four. Okay. Um, and Justin and I were both put on it, and Justin entered the studio at this point. Okay. Um, and he and I were sat next to each other. He was the junior. So designer. you were you were randomly put next to each other. We were both assigned to the project, so uh -huh. sitting next to each other wasn't. Completely random. Right, sure. Right. <laughs> well, you're random. Anyway, but so yes, yeah. Um, 2K married you. 2K married us. He was a designer <laughs> and I was a programmer on Top uh -huh. Spin 4. Um, neither, neither one of us of, were particularly excited about, yep. but um, we enjoyed working together and quickly became friends outside of work with board games. Um, and and it all kind of went from there in terms of where, where Subset Games was. But the, the Top Spin project definitely, I think, warned both of us um, and I quit shortly after that mm -hmm. um actually I technically quit i think before we managed to get it out the door but we were very close to the end um and i went off on a bike trip and, and spent four months biking around asia mm -hmm. um, and then justin i think went part-time shortly thereafter and at some point we decided to start working on ftl okay when you when you quit did you think you still wanted to make video games or you, or you, you... i think i was kind of like that same point in college where i'm not really sure what i'm going to do there's still a reasonable amount of doors open for me um, I didn't love going into studio and working on a massive project with a massive code base that I barely understand. Yeah. Um, on, it was just an unpleasant experience. On a game. I yeah. mean, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to just think, I don't want to be mean to 2K because honestly, sure. they were generous to me and um, yeah, yeah. it was yeah. such a great experience and an opening experience in the games. My lead programmers I worked with taught me so much about sure. programming. Um, and it's just at the end of the day, the games are not my sort of thing. Yeah, and sure. It, and as I said, I the whole point of why I went into games was I want to be programming something that I'm excited about the end result of. Yeah. And Top Spin and MLB weren't really the sure. result I was looking for. Yeah. It is cool to have a. I still got a boxed copy of Top Spin up. Sure. And, yeah. And my <laughs> my my first game was Knockout Kings, a boxing game for EA, and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you revisit it all the time because you yes. love it. Yes, oh, yeah, exactly, game. exactly. Uh, yeah, I never really thought about boxing before and it haven't really since. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so how did you, you two decide to start making something together? Um, FTL started as a hobby project and was only intended as a hobby project. It would okay. be super interesting to hear Justin's take on this because I assume you've gone through now at this point when we overlap. Yeah, I talked to Justin. He told me something about there was like an internal pitch process at 2K. Um, and I don't remember if it really interacted with intersected with FTL, but like it was, they were asking them to put together game because they wanted to make we the 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 Chinese team wanted to make their own game, right? And so they were looking for proposals. and the studio head who was French uh -huh. also wanted the studio to be more independent in making its own projects and not just being an outsourcing. He had aspirations for more, and rightfully so. And he was a nice guy, and the teams wanted to make more, and there was an internal pitch process perhaps that I wasn't directly engaged with that. Okay. Um, we pitched some dramatic changes to like top spin and stuff and he was actually pretty open to it but we never chased them down in the end. Sure. Like at one point we tried to say like top spin could be first person. <laughs> right. I think I was excited by Fallout uh, Far Cry um, uh -huh. 2 and all the really fun hand animations and right, stuff. Right, right. Um, but I, I think he was involved with some of the early attempts that they had at uh, new IPs and new games because after I left 2K um, I didn't have any connection with them again he stayed part-time as a consultant right okay. and, and specifically as a design consultant so I think he um, had a lot more um, overlap with that kind of process than I did when I was there right yeah okay um, 
So you guys, at some point, you guys just talked and yeah, like, we hey, just decided to make you something. Want to try to just make something. Yeah, it was always, to my memory, started out as a. Um, you, you would hear at the time, and I assume it's still advice they give today for aspiring game developers that a portfolio or hobby games and independent games sure. can be beneficial for trying to get a job somewhere. Um, and we both were more interested in maybe moving to a studio that made the types of games we liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we thought maybe some sort of hobby game, and also just for fun. Right. Just like we right now, we're in a position where it's really cheap to live in China. Sure, it was just dirt cheap to live in China. Yep. Um, I, I my salary wasn't amazing in China, but it was definitely sufficient that I could put away um, savings to be able to exist in China for a while. Right. And so we're in a position that we could kind of have that freedom without kids, without any other responsibilities yep. to walk yep. around. Um. And but it was intended as a like six months, put on your resume, go get a proper job afterwards. Right. Um, and then six months went by and we had accidentally stumbled onto something far more interesting than we expected to. Okay. And I do say accidental because it does feel that way still. Right. Okay. I, th- I think a lot of game design is accidental. Okay. So how, do you, how did you pick what the game was going to be about initially? Um, oh, good. We could talk about board games. Again. <laughs> okay. We were playing a lot of um, Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Have you played sure. that one? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, talk, uh, that's a, amazing marriage of theme and mechanics. Sure, again. that's like, for sure. It yeah. absolutely captures everything. Yep. And um, that kind of spaceship management thing was was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were also playing a smaller game called Red November. Okay. It's actually that's like a sub game, right? It's actually sitting on the shelf behind you. Okay. I just introduced it to my son. Right. Um, it is a submarine game with gnomes in a submarine mm-hmm. that are. Desperately trying to survive. They've got it's got a lot of interesting mechanics, but one of them is a time system that they've got. So you've got sixty minutes to survive inside of the sub, and the sub is lighting on fire, and the oxygen is running out. Oh, okay, and, a lot of stuff there. I and see. you're opening doors yep. ah, to yeah. um, like you can get flooding in one room, uh-huh. and if you open the door to that room, the flooding spreads between the two rooms. Yep. Um, but you can use that to put out fires. Right. And so, yeah, if you've played Red November or seen it in the context of FTL, you can very much Let's see draw, some see of the that. lines. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were pulling mechanics. Is it a co op game? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. I mean, cool. you, you can play it by yourself. I think it's completely public information. And, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you could see, you were pulling those mechanics. We're pulling the, we, we saw a lot of spaceship games that were, you know, you're flying the spaceship, not managing the spaceship in the video game world. In the board game world, you, there's not a lot of dogfighting games, though there have been since, and I guess there were some in the tactics side before, but they tend to focus more on the management side. Mm-hmm. And that was something that we thought that would be interesting to try to do the management side in a, in a digital game. Right. Um, and so we didn't really know what the game was going to be at all. That We started out very simple. I think there are prototype videos and stuff online that we, we've shared where it's just like the boxes of the rooms and it's an asteroid field and you're just desperately putting out fires and opening doors for oxygen to put out fires and um, so you're just right you're surviving systems and you're just surviving it was very much like in many ways a red november 10 minute prototype type thing yeah um and from there we tried crazy stuff like zooming out of the ship where you do plot a course and then zooming in and then other player enemy ships are also flying around. And so you're having to do like a top down 2d space battle while also zooming in and managing crews and zooming in on enemy ships and seeing what they're doing and kind of a lot larger simulation. Right. It was a mess and it wasn't fun at all. Okay. And (laughs) at some point, um, it was just too much to manage. It was too much to manage. It, 
the space combat wasn't interesting. It's been done a thousand times, and I'm yep. sure you could do it in an interesting way if that was your focus from the beginning. Right. But it was definitely a case of that we had spread too thin. That we were, and and you'll see this as a the same kind of problems as into the breach and other things in FTL that we quickly realize when something is spun out of control, it's not working, it's not meshing, it's not a tight design. And so we'll just hack off a huge segment of it and say, let's just focus on this bit. Um, and so with FTL, we hacked off all the movement. We said the only thing interesting here is the crew stuff because we don't know a lot of other games that have done that. Right. And so let's just focus on the crew stuff and see where that goes. Okay. I think I originally suggested almost like a Tetris concept where you had... The enemy ship on one side and your ship on the other, like multiplayer touches. Okay, right. And then the kind of idea is that you're doing stuff that then you get to throw crap on onto them. Them, and so you're trying to juggle your own little puzzle, and then you get to throw stuff onto the opponent's puzzle. Um, but it was never intended as multiplayer. It was just kind of a way to maybe visualize where we could go with the design. That was like your basic framework. Yeah. Um, and did you imagine like targeting the ship at that point and like that type of thing? And Yeah. I mean, I, we had a whiteboard that we drew out like the first image of, of two ships next to each other and talking about all the different ways. Okay. Yeah, I never thought of the I never thought of the framing of multiplayer tet Tetris. Yeah, but that a, makes sense now that I think of it. It, it was an abstract concept. Right. Yeah, it, it was a, a weird way to approach it, but that felt right immediately. Right. It was one of those moments. It's 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 funny because it's not really you know obviously there's a lot of differences, but it seems like that's actually a pretty important moment because even just like yeah I, I could what's the right way to put this um, yeah you, you were originally doing the obvious thing. Which is like, okay, there's an asteroid field, there's some ships, we're flying around, we're attacking each other. It's because that's the way all these games yeah. always work. Yeah. Right. And, you know, what's the alternative? You don't see the alternative. You had to look elsewhere for just like an idea. Like, is it okay just to have two ships next to each other? Yeah. Is like, where are they going? Like, are they pointing at each other? And, and like, it takes a while to realize actually, those things don't matter at all. It, it's fine. You like, no one cares. You can hand wave that away yeah. and not worry too much about it. Right. Because the rest of it can be interesting enough. Yeah. Like, what if I go a long way? You know, it's like, no, you can just, just ignore it. So, And I think it's so easy to fall in the trap when you're making games of just like, yeah, taking those mechanics that has always been done before mm -hmm. and you don't even consider why they will or will not work in your game. And then six months later, you realize, oh, that's why they don't work in your game. Right. Um, and you end up cutting them back out. And I feel like I'm doing that constantly and that we are reinventing the wheel constantly, that we are... Stealing mechanics, finding, learning about those mechanics, learning why those mechanics work and don't work, and then not using those mechanics. And it's a constant exercise of like learning game design by designing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like, I, I don't know how this compares to other fields, but it feels like it's actually fairly important in video games design to actually know the history of video games and why why choices were made uh, and like or at least how we got to where we are yeah it's hard to get because you, you know the full context of the full history of video games now is difficult sure and i don't know if you really need the full evolution as long as you like it's like a like a, a math theorem right that do you need to know all of the attempts mm -hmm. at the answer before someone got to an answer right or do you just need to fully understand the theorem and the proof yeah. that we have now right but and like, then you can't just steal that proof and use it randomly you need to really understand the yeah. mechanics and what's happening there before you can use it in new and interesting ways right and like it's useful for example to know the league of legends essentially derives from a warcraft 3 mod right yes. and that's why a bunch of the ways that games works were just things they inherited for warcraft 3. they weren't necessarily things that they chose to make the game work that way it's nice to know that context though i think it's interesting to examine the game 
and that they've kept it. Right. Like I find, I still find playing those games today, I still feel like I'm playing a mod. Right. It still kind of carries that baggage yep, sure. with it. Yeah. And clearly there's a lot there that people enjoy. Right. Um, and and um, it, it's not my cup of tea, but I think it's fascinating that, yeah, that there are mechanical decisions or control decisions that there, that's kind of a reason why, but that's not really the reason why. Like, why do we keep it? Just because right. that was the history of it, that's not enough of an answer. Yeah. We must have kept it because it works in some way and it does something interesting. Yeah, or they're just afraid to change it also. Like, it, it's just hard. Like, it, there's some things, uh, which one is it? I mean, it's been a long time since I've thought about, thought, thought about this, but like, like Dota 2 kept, um, I think it kept creep denial where you kill your own characters. Like, you, you get XP for killing your own minions and League of Legends did not keep that, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, there's you can... You know, it, that was 100% just something they inherited from from Warcraft, right? And, yeah, it's like at some point you have to ask, like, is this making the game better or not? Or is it just this is the way people are used to playing it? Yeah. Well, I think we all fall in that trap too often. This is the way people are used to playing things. And not what is this actually doing? Like, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of this mechanic? What is the purpose of... of any given element, what, what, how is it influencing player behavior? How is it influencing strategy? How is it making the game feel? How, what about it does that? Like those questions that Justin and I are constantly um, arguing about yep. on, when it comes to not just the games we're making, but also the games we're playing. And I assume most designers are. Sure, right. <laughs> but we're we're, we're um, pretty insular and not that exposed to much of the rest of the game industry. So yeah, um, who knows? Okay. Uh, well, one word that does not come up yet is roguelike. Ah, yeah, roguelike. So how important is that, or is that a... Wait, wait, go ahead. No, yeah. <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it was... That's a, we've been doing... We've done a couple of interviews recently about FTL because we just came up on the um, 10th anniversary. Right. Um, and I've had... And with the launch of the Advanced Edition for Into the Breach, I was doing interviews as well, and the subject of not just why was FTL a roguelike, but why did everyone start making roguelikes yes. in 2012 mm -hmm. um, is an answer, is a question that I don't really have a great answer for. Right. Um, I, I think, and the thing I've mostly said is that um, you cannot overestimate the influence of the original Splunky. Okay. That, sure. that first Splunky version, the free version, I think was played by a ton of budding designers. Justin introduced it to me. Um, and we played a ton of it. And it showing you what you could do with a roguelike framework in a new... Completely different genre. Genre yeah. was um, revolutionary and, yeah. and definitely was an exciting change. Okay, well, talk about that. Because roguelike can mean a whole bunch of different things. So yes. what was the key elements there that like... I don't know if we ever described it as a roguelike. Sure. Um, I think we did in the marketing talk. Yeah. I think within the breach, we've, we've completely avoided the word sure. roguelike. Um, I think it's a contentious term that's yeah. not really worth using, <laughs> yeah. especially now. That's why um, I want to tease it out. Like, what are, what are the yeah, actual for, elements of that that are important? For me, which is not well, what is the Berlin interpretation, yes, right. I, I, is not necessarily something I, I hang anything Very on. Very 16th century Reformation <laughs> or something, you know. Like, <laughs> but go ahead. Um, I think the permadeath nature of things... Um, the run-based system in general, I'm, and I usually lean back, fall back on, I think other designers as well, fall back on run-based now instead of roguelike, um, and which kind of incorporates everything of the core, the randomness, because it, it wouldn't be run-based if it wasn't at least partially random. Um, the permadeath feature is also what drives the run-based nature of it. Um, and I think that's like the, that's the only really important stuff to me. Um, 
stuff like the dungeon crawling and the yeah, all the conference roguelike discussions, I don't think. But I think the name is silly for that reason. Like we sure. shouldn't be calling it roguelike. Yeah. It it should be called run base or something like that. Yeah. Um and while I definitely did play like a lot of uh, NetHack mm-hmm. back in high school, yeah. um, and I was familiar with the roguelike genre, we were, we were approaching it more from like the Splunky framework yeah. for how you can make a roguelike. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think another influence, and I don't think it should be underestimated, is board games. Not just on us, but on the industry as a whole. That you said you were getting like you once you leave the world of Monopoly and find this whole world of board games, it's a lot of exciting stuff yeah. with a lot of exciting, unique designs. And board games are inherently run-based. Sure, yeah. You get out a board game, you randomize the deck and everything, and you play for an hour or two, and if you lose, you lose and it's over, right. and you put it away. And I think we were coming at FTL from Red November and Battlestar Galactica, as I talked about, and I love of board games, and it's inherently just a design structure that I like. Even if it's you, you don't have, you even have to point at the roguelike to find that design structure, and I think it's super satisfying. Right. Um. And so, and also makes it so much more fun to develop. Yeah. But at the time, I think the pitch for FTL was just like we wanted death to matter. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it's, it's weird. Like because that. You could almost describe roguelike or whatever from the opposite perspective of like, well, what was going on in the industry at the time? Like at the time, it felt like progression and persistence was the 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 thing that people assumed games should have right yes. and to some extent accessibility as well yes like in, in, in just in the terms of which the road like difficulty never yeah <laughs> right um and you know those are all things that can be good useful tools for for a lot of games um but it precludes a lot of different types of play experiences um you know you you said the randomness falls out from it being being run based but i yeah i, I do think i want to emphasize like what's, what's really important is that you're not um you're not tempted to keep using the same tricks each time you play FTL because you can't yeah, because, you because can't. you're not guaranteed yeah. the same, the same type of weapons or crew or whatever. Like to me, that's just like such a fun, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really so basic, but a lot of games just don't do that. Right. They do um, now. Well, they do now. <laughs> they, they didn't at the time. Um, yeah. But you know, a lot of games don't do that because it's, it's scary. You know, yeah. you don't know what type of experience the player is going to have. I mean, we wouldn't call it roguelike, but certainly the reason I was very, you know, very always into the Civ games was just the random maps, right? Civ is in many ways. I mean, I guess you can save your run, but I don't feel like you normally do. Like you normally just play a game of Civilization through to the end and the story that you get while you play it. Sure. It's a 20-hour roguelike. Right. But it's, a, it's in yep. some ways still structured like that you know, yep. or like a board game. Yeah. yeah, and to me, it's just like, well, I want a different, you know, I want a unique experience each time I play. Yeah. and it's just, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's actually just very straightforward. Right? It's, yeah, there's nothing complicated <laughs> about that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. So, so a lot came to you through Spelunky. That that kind of like, is that what inspired this idea of like, okay, we're gonna have we're gonna have stores and they're gonna have different items and it's gonna give us this variety. We're gonna have different ships or am I going too fast? I couldn't swear by any, it's been so long now. Sure. Cause it has been, um, we just passed our 10th anniversary. So it's been at least 12 years since we started on it. And um, to say individual decisions like stores, I mean, stores could have been something as silly as games have stores. Games have stores, sure. You get scrap, you got to spend it on something. Yep. You, you upgrade and buy things. Like those are the two things that you do. And I, I, you know, I, I was coming at this from an RPG lover as well. Like it's not, again, you're just, even the mechanics, some you overthink and some you plop in and they work and you don't overthink it. Um, and I had something else I was going to say a moment ago and I forgot what it was now. 
Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, right. it might pop back. Um, okay, I mean, where did the I mean, where did the meta structure come in? Of you know, kind of like the the nodes and you're being chased and you know you're going to have this this big thing at the end and well the the being chased was the hunger mechanic sure. okay which Splunky had a timer yep. and the ghost right um and any roguelike at the time I think we've moved a little bit further away from that in as typical roguelike design yeah um it was something that people hated the the fleet chasing mm-hmm. um and hmm, that's interesting that you call that out I mean. How would the game work without the fleet chasing you? Well, that's really fun about it, though, actually, is that um, people didn't like it, and they complained about it on the forums and stuff um, because they want to explore every note, and they want yep, the, sure. kind of the type of RPG experience I was talking about before. You could explore every note yep. and cranny and fully experience the game. Um, and so they made mods to take out the fleet. Um, and it was always really fun seeing those threads because at least half of them would like... It was a light bulb moment yep, right. of... Now I understand what the fleet mechanic does. Right. Um, and before I took it out, I thought it was an annoyance. But now that it's now that I took it out, I can see that it, it the structure of the game relies on it. Right. And it was really fun seeing people discover that design by poking in our game. Um, and I've I've had a couple moments with other like junior designers and stuff in the industry since um, the release of FTL that I've always appreciated that they've said that they really liked FTL because of the transparency of its mechanics. Sure. Because it is like a, a board game in many of the ways that it's presented and the way they interact with the mechanics and that it taught them a lot about game design because they were able to see the workings like that. And I feel yeah. like the fleet stuff is a good example of that as well, that it's, it's fun to be able to see people poke at the game and kind of discover our thought process. Yeah. makes it easier so I don't have to defend it. Yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. definitely times where I have explained our thought process to people and it works or it doesn't work. It's definitely easier if they can experience it themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, it seemed pretty clear what the, from my point of view, what the, the intention was. But um, it wasn't something we thought we would confuse people by yeah. doing. Like, it, it wasn't a, a, a brilliant piece of game design. But I think it's a good example of how much the player base on a whole, which we're covering all the time, the, the, the industry yep. and how you make games is quite opaque and yep. difficult to understand. And if they haven't overthought it, then yeah. a decision like that isn't trivial. Right. Well, and also players don't come to the game like without all of the assumptions they brought from all the other games oh, yeah. they've played before. And it, it's a reality. You can't, you have to at least understand that that's something that that's going to be happening. For sure. And sometimes those mechanics, even though they're important to the structure of the game, can be annoying still. Yep. Just because it is a correct or typical or like the game yep. needs it to work. Like I think um, the, the weapon breaking in Breath of the Wild okay. yep. is an example that I, it kind of have a pet peeve of the people complaining about it. Because in, in many ways, it's like the fleet where it's clearly a mechanic designed to influence the player behavior in the ways that they wanted you to. And I don't think it's inherently on its own a bad design. But on the other hand, it drives people nuts. And even though it's doing the right thing for the design and the mechanics and pushing players to explore and use new weapons and things and not hoard, it's not succeeding because it's not, no one's enjoying it. Right. So there is an alternative, right? Like what you could have done is just done one directional movement, right? Yeah. Could have not jumped back. You wouldn't need the fleet at all. Yeah. Right. You know, it would be a much more linear path, obviously. Yeah. Um, But kind of the slay the spire um, structure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it, you still get some branching choices, but you're mostly, yeah, that's a good connection because I kind of feel like maybe that is the way. Yeah. That's the easier design to get players on board with. That's the design that you see 
all the time. All the time now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> people people aren't doing the fleet, so yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> the is, fleet was no one like you know, it. Yeah. It worked, but but yeah, I mean, you really should think about these things of like, okay, what's the point of this? What's the best way to to like get that? Yeah. Without you know annoying the player. Or, yeah. Or making them feel like they're missing out on something. Right? Even when you're right, you might not be right. Yeah, and or you could be more right. You could be more <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I think it's the it's the whole the classic that the player is never wrong. Right. Yes. If they're sure. if they're complaining about something, sure, I can tell them why I did it, but yeah. I can't tell them they're wrong. I yeah. can't tell them the fleet is fun. Damn it! You yeah. Go enjoy your fleet, and, yeah. and so it, it's it's something that it's just a difficult part of the process. Well, as, as a Civ four X designer, I mean, I have all sorts of things. To examples of things that were in the game that we thought had a specific purpose and we're like, oh, well, you have to do this because of that. And then we eventually figured out a way to get rid of them um, and it, the game just got better, right? Um, so. And you can cling to things too long. Yeah, for sure. sure. It's like, well, we've done this since yeah. Civ 2 or whatever and like, you know, yeah, exactly. The thing with the fleet though for us, and again, it goes back to my love of theme. Mm -hmm. I think that the theming of the yes. fleet chasing you sure. is more dramatic and adds to the atmosphere in a way that just like picking the next node while climbing the tower and Slate Spire yep. doesn't carry as much like yep. emotion to it. Yep. And so there was definitely an influence on a lot of decisions we make like the fleet is that yeah. it's you're trying to create an experience and an atmosphere. You're not just trying to solve the game design puzzle. Yeah. And that's the difficulty with a really good theme mixing with a really good design is solving both at the same time yeah. is twice as hard. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And and I say that beyond beyond that, I'd say that now the Slay the Spire map is so common that just doing it a different way, I think, is also valuable. You For know, sure. On on the other end, where yeah. it's like now when people see the map, that type of map, they aren't they, at that point they're almost broken out of whatever the theme of the game is supposed to be. They're like, oh, it's Slay the Spire. Right, like yeah. you know, that's just what this is, right? Yeah. Um, and and so. you can you get people turning off their brain. I mean, I'll do it. I'll turn off my brain. Right. I'll, if I start up a game and it's used too many of the things I'm so used to seeing, I'll put it down because it's a, not necessarily because it's a bad game, but just because I'm still looking for design that excites me and, and is new to me and, and does something different. That um, recycling design over and over and over does get stale. Yeah, which is sad then because some of it is great, fundamentally great design, and we shouldn't. New for the sake of new seems wrong, right? But it it is something you got to do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Cool. All right. Uh, let's see what else is good to discuss with with FDL. Um, so combat in FDL can get pretty frantic. It's it it can be pretty fiddly. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot of times I've had guys die. That, oh, so fiddly. That, that I was like, oh, like how did how did this come about and so on? Like, um, talk about just. The path the, the actual you know moment to moment gameplay went through um it, or stuff like that you know like you know you have certain weapons that are like not don't use consumables and certain ones that do and like all of these little decisions there's definitely elements of that that you're just again cribbing off of what games have done before right like i, I can't pretend this is me being or justin being some big brain designer that invented the concept of the consumable that is more powerful than the not consumable right version. sure and so much so much of it was tried and true um mechanics um, there was definitely, and the game ended up fiddly because we didn't really know what we were doing and uh -huh. it was hacking stuff together. Yeah. Um, and I do kind of think of FTL as that kind of garage indie band version of the first album that it's all rough around the edges and doesn't look or play particularly professionally, but something about it comes together to be greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And FTL kind of really encapsulates that. 
Um, in terms of all the mechanics that interacted for combat, um, we knew that we wanted a shield system, and that was stealing from. I hadn't mentioned it, but another big influence on me was the X-wing series back in the okay. from the nineties, um, and the power management as well as the shield system was me stealing from that. Okay. Um, oh, really? The the power management system I'd never seen before. Um, and um, in the X-wing series, like, you can we, divert power from engines and shields and weapons. Right. You're okay. only dividing between three things. Okay. And I think it was only it's like. Is the, there's like three levels, neutral, boosted, or, or negative, and you're balancing just between right. those three systems. And I always thought that was super cool. I also loved the MechWarrior okay. series back right. from the 90s, mm -hmm. which also involved a lot of like balancing heat and balancing yep. weight right. and balancing like you had to, you couldn't just be super fast, super strong, super, you had to pick and choose um, elements of your build that, that um, would work at any given moment. Right. And for FTL, that was it was the kind of old school '90s simulation games that that we were pulling from, or at least where I was presenting it from. A really cool thing about working with Justin is um, we actually like dramatically different games. Oh, okay. Um, we very rarely overlap. Spunky would be uh, one of the right. examples that we both definitely fell in love with. But um, it's interesting here because I kind of a, it kind of feels like you guys have a really cohesive design approach. So. I think we have a cohesive design approach and philosophy, and like the the that examination of a mechanic and how it belongs in a system and making sure it belongs in a system and like really digging into it all as a, as a, as a way to approach games. Um, and there's enough overlaps that it works, but like in our free time, we play very different games. And right. like a couple of years ago, we did a top 10 list of 2020 for our personal pop top 10s so like giant bomb or something that they yep. do yearly. And um, I remember, I don't think there was one game on our two <laughs> lists. So yeah, right. and that was just in one year, much less across like a huge yeah. spread. And so we're both always bringing dramatically different influences to um, the design, which is what's also uh, undeniably is going to be a huge factor in why it works, is that we're not just following the same treads. We're combining two kind of weird places together yeah. to make something new. Um, and so I'm sure, or maybe uh, if you guys talked about the power system or something with Justin, maybe he has a different memory. Right. I'm sure he's not wrong. Sure. I can speak from my memory of um, my influences, why I was excited about it was from those types of games. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, simple interaction. I'm not sure where the interaction of making the consumable, the missiles that go through shields is an obvious one that like, yep. that's the free the trade -off. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and then an interaction between lasers and beam weapons and shields and how those all got along. It was all just, it's a lot of filling in design spaces of just we need to make sure this weapon does something that these other weapons don't do. Yeah. And that we never want to just be this weapon is 10 stronger than that weapon. Right. Or um, you want them to be orthogonal in some way. Always orthogonal, always interesting and unique. There are different versions of beams and different versions of lasers. And some of them are objectively stronger, but it's still not like any direct upgrades sure it's there's always a trade-off yeah and when i got the like when i got the ship that really pushed me to use the troop the troop transport mm -hmm. right like i mean that's just like completely okay now i'm just playing a completely different game it feels like right yeah the the boarding one was a weird one and oh god is that mechanic hacked, hacked in the boarding <laughs> combat's terrible that's barely functional right but again an example of somehow it all works because it all yeah. i think i think the earnestness of the game comes across and despite the fuzzy yep Design um, decisions. Yeah. What, um, looking back, I'll tell you what Justin said, but looking back, what would you do differently? 
Oof. about. I know uh, Justin has. Justin, I think. I mean, I'm sure he changes his mind. We all change our mind about everything yeah. all the time. But he, I believe, has troubles replaying FTL now. Yeah. Because he sees all the things he wouldn't have done. Sure. Today. Yeah. Which is totally understandable. I can find more um, fun in the game as it exists today. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't poke anything. Um, okay. Um, I, I like it for what it is. And would I make it again today? No. Um, what would I change? It's just a weird question to ask for me because I it is I it sure, is, it is, it is it what is. it is and I don't and I, I but presumably you know if you could somehow give yourself the knowledge you have now ten years ago like what would you have done? Um, well, we would have spent a lot longer on it, like we did with End of the Breach, which mm. not necessarily to its we would have also needed the money to do that. Right, sure. Another question altogether, um, and. Yeah, because there were a lot, as I keep saying, it, it's a little rough around the edges and stuff like the boarding combat. I think all the boarding stuff is horrific. Okay. <laughs> all right. It doesn't work at all. Like shuffling in and out units yeah. and trying to shuffle them between their slots. Well, the movie, moving the units in general, moving the carriers in general is like kind of the trickiest part of the game. It's so all, yeah. It, yeah. Which is why the iPad version is better. It's, yep. it's easier to do the units on yep. the iPad version, though it's harder to shuffle them for, com for right. boarding combat, I think. I don't know. Yeah, that's a mess. That stuff, and, and it's a mess because it was added later. Okay. Um, boarding was added like a year into it and we absolutely know we need it. We absolutely want that additional way to defeat enemies and that another layer to the combat. Right. Um, especially as you already have so much focus on the crew being inside the ship, we need to have threats yeah. inside the ship that you can control. But because we designed the whole game before we got to that point without having that in mind, we kind of just shoved it in and it never fit, I thought. Yeah. Um, I think... I don't know how I'd fix it, but I think despite what you said earlier about having to be um, kind of improvisational, that it does kind of have, I think almost every game falls into some rope patterns. Yeah. That if you've played it a lot, you know, no matter how hard you tried to make every weapon different and not yep. better, there's still some that are better. And um, I don't know how you fix it, but there are definitely upgrade paths that I do every time if I'm just playing for fun, like with my son. Um, and there are, I think, objectively correct solutions, sure. which is never, whenever, like, that's one of the big things that Justin and I both examine when we're testing and, and developing is if there's ever a decision that we feel like is objectively correct, sure. then we've done it wrong. Yeah, of course. And again, I'm sure I'm not unique in half the things I say from design more <laughs> than, but it is one that we're constantly examining. Yeah. And well, I think FTL in hindsight has more of those than I would have liked to have had. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the design is just mitigating these things because these are endemic problems that all games will have. And yeah. just the, the roguelike framework mitigates it a little bit. Because, okay, maybe there's always the right choices, but you're not going to even maybe get that choice you might in this not. game. No, but you do in FTL would say like the um, systems are pretty sure. static. What you're going to upgrade. What you're going to upgrade, making sure you get shields a certain level by a certain time. Yeah, things like that. That seems really important for are, sure. But there's also not necessarily anything directly wrong with having a, a reliable backbone yeah. that you need to follow yeah. while then getting to experiment on the edges. Yeah. The whole like, I'm not going to upgrade shields path seems a little bizarre. That's, those are the, the challenge runs that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. they, they, they do that I've never attempted myself. Yeah. But um, yeah, it is fun to see plans do that. So I'll tell you what Justin said. The thing that, that, he's, that bothers him the most looking back is that there's a certain amount, the combat can get a little loopy. Like, like you're kind of doing... It, not that you're doing the same things between combats, but within a single combat, you know, if you have a certain thing that you'll do, you'll just kind of keep doing it. And especially, especially that the ships can repair themselves. 
So you can kind of get in this loop where the combat is not resolving itself as fast as it should. Yeah, and I think he also struggles with, um, he would have wanted, I think, to spread out weapons between multiple systems. Did he mention To do that? what? Spread out weapons between multiple systems. I don't know what that means exactly. You know, in FTO, you've got the weapon system. Yep. And all your weapons are in your weapon system. Yep. And if your weapon system goes down, all your weapons go down. Oh, I see. And yeah. if you destroy the enemy's weapon system, yeah, it's all just their it's just too powerful. Yeah. It's too powerful, and it, it, if it happens it's what to you, creates that loop yep. that yep. you go in to fight and you take out the shields, you take out the weapons, and then you shoot the shields again because they've probably been fixed, and then, <laughs> and then you shoot the weapons, and then you shoot the shields, and it's like the same thing yep. over and over. Yeah. Um. And I I can't disagree with him on that. Yeah. But in other ways, I feel like you're building out a a build to your ship. And part of the fun is finding that loop right. and engaging it like a lot of games have. The, um, if you're playing an RPG, if you're playing a, something where you're building out a character, you have a set sequence of events that combos together nicely to defeat enemies. Yeah. And you have to improvise sometimes, but mostly you're relying on that. You've, you've solved it yeah. in the pieces you've put together to, to create the desired effect. And I think with FTL, there's a satisfaction in that, in some cases, that like you've designed a ship that can reliably shut down their oxygen and healing so that they die before and you don't even need to destroy everything else. And you've set up enough defenses where you don't even have to shoot the weapon system. Now you're going to do that over and over on the ships you're fighting to keep the oxygen down and on the ships you encounter. But you've kind of, you had to structure your build and use the tools you were given to get to that point. And so it's almost the, the pleasurable reward of being able to see your, it's a deck building, yep. to see your engine working. Um, and so it's not necessarily bad on its own, um, but I can also at the same time it's like see where it's coming from. And as we do always want to create interesting decisions and not just repetitive decisions, it would be something that we'd want to poke at. Yep. But where you find the difference between those things. And what you find fun is just so complicated. Sure. Um, Justin and I have had a big discussion in the last couple of weeks about Vampire Survivor. Okay, yeah. And um, it's definitely got a cycle of like you're just doing every time, I mean, you're not even controlling the weapons, you're right. kind of doing the same strategy over and over, you're very much repeating a loop. Um, but something about the loop is satisfying. Sure, right. And I, I can't explain it. I hated the game when I first played it, mm. um, but I stubbornly stuck with it because it's overwhelmingly popular. Yeah. And I wanted to understand the design and where it's coming from to make it satisfying. And I did eventually click with it, but I still have troubles, I don't think, anyone could really point to exactly what made it click with you i don't know that's my point okay, yeah. okay right. <laughs> i mean i think the more i played it the more i saw the mechanical designs of the weapons and the at first glance the weapons in vampire survivor felt samey to me right um and that the patterns weren't that interesting and how i used them wasn't that interesting but as i unlocked more levels and and realized the exploration the metagame to it and the, the way the weapon shapes combined with the movement um, small variations, variations that were meaningful that I started to click a little bit more with right. it. And the kind of brainless joy of hitting the right combination where you're just overpowered. Yeah, sure. A lot of games capitalize on it. Um, and again, that's the classic engine deck builder design. Yeah. Um, um, it's never been as big for me. So I think that's part of the reason the game never clicked quite as much as it did for other people. Um, I don't love that. I feel like I finished the game when I get to that point. Yeah, sure. Um, and 
Instead, it makes me play for another 15 minutes, and it's, and it's annoying. But um, it, it, it was one that eventually kind of made sense. But it, I forgot where I started with the why of talking Vampire Survivor. Oh, the, the repetitive loop nature, yeah, sure, I think, is yeah. where it came from. Um, and so it's just really hard to nail down the, the kind of ephemeral qualities of yep. what makes a game fun, which, again, not a new idea. Sure. This is a problem that we're encountering, everyone's encountering all the time. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, well, let's talk about because we talked, we've kind of gone through a lot of the FDL design. Let's talk about like the release of the game and like what, um, what it must have been like to make this experiment, which then became, you know, became a huge hit. It and became like, much larger than we ever expected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that was weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's one I, I always hate talking about in a ways because I'm going to complain. Okay. <laughs> and I feel bad complaining because yeah. you can't, you shouldn't complain because, you know, if someone who set out to make their own game and then it releases to wild success should be nothing but it was the most exciting, wonderful time. Life is amazing. Sure. The right. End. And so it feels shitty to complain on it. But, um, I found the launch, well, the, everything from the Kickstarter on, because okay. we had a Kickstarter yep. that generated um, 20 times something what we asked for. And then we ended up with like 5,000 beta testers. Yep. Um, and releasing the game to them and then managing the community and tech support and their, in that group and the design changes and stuff to kind of follow them and their desires. Um, and then up to the launch and simultaneously launching on Windows, Mac, and Linux uh -huh. um, as the programmer on the team. All of the tech problems fall on me. Right. Um, and... I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I, I still yeah. don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. And so um, the massive amount of text, when you have a massive hit and you sell a lot of copies, you get a lot of problems. Sure. And it's, you know, again. So you were solving weird, obscure problems. I was uh, drowning in tech support and, uh -huh. and customer service and getting emails hourly with. Did you consider finding someone to do that for you? <sighs> I mean, not for you, but at least with you, right? With yeah, it's it's hard because at the end of the day, like a lot of the programming was mine, and so I had to get yeah. in there and fix it. And it was still weird at age and an era, a weird an era, and um, in our studio life that this was all so new and how to run a business and what we were doing. You're just hiring someone was not really something we'd done. We, the most we'd done at that point was hire out a contractor to yeah. do some writing and, and hire Ben to do some music. Yeah. But like hiring a staff member to like work on emails with me was was. Definitely not even like, wait, I can do that. Yeah. Um, but so the, I remember the overwhelming stress and difficulty and complaints, like people harassing me on the forums. Uh, yeah. Um, because there would be people who just, they, you know, again, this is not new information, but for whatever reason, they're going to be in their bonnet about bugging a developer and they want to, they, they're recreating accounts to complain about the game and yep. being abusive and you're banning them and they make new accounts. And um, that nightmare of pretty much needing to deal with it solo because of the tech side being my responsibility yep. um, made the launch a lot less pleasurable than it maybe should have been. Right. Yeah. And honestly, it was enough that I, at some point, I had a conversation with Justin that I don't know if I ever want to do it again. Wow. Okay. Like the, the responsibility, like I love making the game, but responsibility of launching and maintaining a game. And I still hate launching. Yeah. Uh, well, be, launching I mean, we're going to talk into the breach, but did you, was this better the second time around? Um, mm. <laughs> um, but we only did one platform, which yeah. was me learning sure. from that mistake and doing Windows only to start. 
um, it still had its issues. Yeah. It's PCs are, it's not releasing on the console. Yeah. You release on the console, a gameplay bugs and they're a thing. Um, and gameplay bugs, you know, are naturally something you're going to have to fix. It's going to be the fix. same bug for everyone. Yeah. Um, and easier to track down, easier to fix and you're done. But it's the, it's the tech problems of it, like not running on my dual monitor setup. Yeah. That, um, are, are the ones that drive me nuts. And I feel terrible because I don't want people to waste their money. Sure. On it. Of course. And I remember like, and there'd be these like kids, kids would email me. They'd, they'd be, they'd say in the email that they're like 12 years old yep. and they've never updated drivers. They've never, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm taking screenshots and yeah, sending yeah. them walkthroughs. And I actually got a really nice email from a guy, uh, like a month ago that, um, thanking me for helping him get FTL to run like 10 years ago. Oh, that's nice, yeah. And he just said that uh, he'd never experienced customer support where someone was like going to walk him through. And I was like, I felt so much personal responsibility to make sure this game was running on everyone's system. Um, and it was it was difficult to have that. And the end of the breach, I don't think you can release a PC game that doesn't that's, have yeah. problems. And so I guess I'm a little bit more aware and accepting of that now. But I still find it extremely stressful. You know, you could hire like a programmer. We have. Okay, you have. Good. And All almost right. entirely because of this reason. Okay. okay I wanted good. a programmer who um, loves tech and loves tech for the sake of tech. Good. And is good at those sorts of problems yeah. um, for the team. For Because at that point, when we hired him um, about three or four years ago, we were doing into the breach ports and stuff. Yes. And we didn't want to get contractors every time we wanted a port because then maintaining them is difficult. Yeah. And so we needed finally to add another full-time member to the team. And so we added Mauro, who's brilliant. Great. Um, and does relieve a lot of the stress in the sense of at least I've got someone who, A, is much smarter than me. Mm-hmm. And B, um, is much more experienced on top of those things. But it doesn't remove like the emotional guilt sure. and stress um, from the experience yeah. it just means at least i don't also have to stress about it getting fixed and me needing to solve right. the problem yeah. while doing the emotional stress thing. yeah sure well it also prevents you from doing the thing that you're you're better at right yes you know, like yeah so good all right well i'm glad <laughs> we did eventually get there it just took me you know seven years yeah. to, to realize well, there was a I, presumably you had no idea what to expect or what was going on when you did the kickstarter and like what was what was going to happen and you were just trying to survive week to week you know we had no idea what we were doing yeah yeah and um, because the industry changes so much i still feel like i don't know what i'm doing right <laughs> <laughs> um okay well now at least you're now that after a few years pass looking back like what are your feelings about you know how people feel about fdl I will never stop being weird and surreal yeah. and not really make a lot of sense. Um, like, I think just, just recently Todd Howard of, of Bethesda uh-huh. said that there's some FTL in Starfield. Starfield, yep. Um, which is weird. Like, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's, it's, it's you know something we're proud and grateful for, but it's never going to not be weird to just stumble across something that we were making in our bedrooms in Shanghai um, being referenced by studio heads and, and people that we respect immensely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Well, it definitely hit, I think the word zeitgeist is, is for yeah. this type of a, a moment, right? Where, you know, games have been going in kind of an odd different direction and, you know, Splunky started pulling one and you guys were another important one. We were at the direction. right place at the right time yeah. for sure. And it, and it did. And it's cool to yeah have an influence on the industry in any way, shape or form yep. that we both love is, is super cool. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, well, let's let's talk about Into the Breach then. Okay. Am I covering the stuff you wanted to cover? Yeah, no, this is, this is going great. It's going okay. Great. It's going to be really nice to put them back to back, like Justin's version and your version. So it'll be really good.
Really good. Have you done other combos like that for? Probably not. You guys are kind of really unique in that it's just like very much the two of you. Yeah. You both do design. You know, you both have interesting things to say about it. Um, so I'm trying to think. I, I mean, I would totally do stuff like this. I did do, um, but yes, I did do back to back um, um, John Ingold and Meg Gianth, uh who did 80 Days mm -hmm. together. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. And that was that was really kind of neat to you know just juxtapose juxtapose. Juxtapose. Yeah, and I kind of did Brian and Sid right next to each other, uh -huh. uh, and uh, so that was kind of cool too. But. Yeah, Justin and I are, uh, I remember we were, I was at a party, some game dev party like, ages ago, um, before Into the Witch, um, and I was talking to someone who, who drank a reasonable amount, and he had met <laughs> Justin before, mm. and he said that he understands why we work together, that we're both weird. We're both, <laughs> we're both weird in our own ways, we're right. different weird, Differently weird, but yeah. we're still weird, and we're, the two of us together must work in terms of just being two weird people working together, yeah. which was, I don't think it felt like a compliment, still doesn't feel like a huge compliment, <laughs> but I also don't think he was wrong, so yeah. it's hard to... <laughs> well, I did ask Justin how you guys resolve conflict, which wow. like yeah. is something that... Uh, I would assume would be a big problem when you guys are such a 50-50 company, mm -hmm. right? Like at least with like a three-person company, you could imagine like, oh, there's a conflict. Well, at some point, two of the people are like, hey, we really want to do this. And the third person is like, well, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. But when you're 50-50, like what happens if there's some intractable problem that can't be resolved? We've been um, – we have been – very lucky. I've been finding Justin, working with Justin has been just an incredible stroke of luck in my life. Um, it's amazing how little conflict we have. Right. Um, a huge part of it, I mean, there's the two halves, the design half and then like the running a business, having a life half. Um, on the business side and the life side, um, we're on the exact same page. Right. And the, we never have to argue about anything. Neither one of us are financially motivated as the sole purpose for what right. we do. Um, neither one of us have aspirations of running a big studio yep. and growing. Neither one of us um, are looking to just exploit sequels to the end of the day. Right. Um, there's but At the same time, when something like Netflix comes by and says, hey, you want to pour it into the breach um, to mobile, we both be open-minded and consider offers. And even, it, purely in that case, it's a business decision, but it, it's one that we can both agree on without really fighting about it. Right. Um, on the design side, um, FTL was a more difficult process. Mm -hmm. the, I definitely remember having long arguments with Justin about mechanics, about okay. how cloaking should work, how ion weapons should work. Um, was there a pattern to these arguments? I wanted one thing and he wanted something different. Sure. I mean, it was... Um, it was, I mean, like, was there, like, some philosophical difference about, like, consequence or speed or, like, riskiness or whatever? Um, not that I can remember. No, okay. it was just purely, just, like, just subjectively what we thought would work best okay. in the game or not. <laughs> That's tough, yeah. yeah. And I was young and more willing and aggressive in arguing um, okay. than, I, than I am now. And um, I can probably take the responsibility of maybe some of the bigger arguments would have been on me for not letting something drop. Right. Um, but as we continue to work together, um, I think we've grown to trust each other. Right. Um, and we definitely have, have a philosophy now in game design that um, if one person doesn't like something, we just don't do it. Okay, and, sure. And then we work together to find a solution that we both like. Right. And it just doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. 
um, and that we we usually can find something that both of us like more. Yeah. Um, because we because we've done that. Yeah. But the end result of that was that into the breach took five years. <laughs> right. I was to say that you guys have the luxury of like, okay, we'll take the time to figure out if you have a timer, then yeah. the, if you have a pressure cooker, then it's, it's yes. a different situation. Yeah. But that kind of falls back on, again, our philosophy of we're not looking to expand. We don't want that huge burn rate of staff and studio and all the stuff that goes into that that then puts on those constraints. Sure. So we can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, and so it, it took a longer time to make into the breach, but it was much less arguing because... Yeah. Um, we've just trusted each other yeah. and it's amazing how often, I mean, it's not amazing. The guy's brilliant, but just make a design suggestion and I will say, oh, I don't really like that, but I'll implement it. Yeah. And then he'll be right. And it'll be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it happens more often than not that he's right. And, and, and something that he wanted was that was something worth doing. Yeah. Um, I get the benefit as being the programmer that I can just put in anything I want whenever I want. Right. I don't have to convince him to implement it. Yeah. I kind of, I asked a little bit about that, that like, it seems like at the end of the day, since you're actually the one implementing stuff, a lot of stuff will kind of default to, you know, kind of maybe your perspective to some extent, just by there's no other way. Right. Even if something is entirely his idea, I get to have my fingers on it. On how it comes out. On how it comes out when I right. put it in. Yeah. And I'd be lying if I didn't say I, I, I like having. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I like, I, for, for me as a designer, um, I like implementing it. And I think the code and the design kind of sure. mesh in the same way that theme meshes in. Like the way something's implemented almost is an expression of that design. Yeah. And um, I like having my fingers on every mechanic that goes in and really, really... Yeah. No, one, no one has ever coded my designs. I am the only one who ever implements my, yeah. my designs. And it's, it's hard to imagine doing it differently because it feels like it would be very frustrating. Yeah. The, <laughs> being, you're like, like trying real to work build is... something... Re- with a robot hand from a distance or something. But like that's that. how the industry works. Yeah. Right? Like, really, that's how the industry works. Like, the 100 designers on a Ubisoft project are not, you know... Yeah. <laughs> they're not programming anything, you know, let alone how they all work together, which is a mystery to me. I don't understand how any of it works, yeah. Though I was shocked and surprised to hear when I, I met a couple of the, the... Or, excuse me, the two designers on XCOM 2. Okay. I think back at, like, GDC. Uh-huh. And I'm surprised that it sounded like... um for access works yeah and closer to how we work that's than how like a big studio that's works. why i went to work at for access because yeah. they still had a coder designer a designer programmer tradition that descends from sid you yeah. know and he still he was still implement coding stuff while i was there and um yeah i mean that's the thing i didn't i didn't want to be put in a programmer box yeah and i also felt like it'd be a waste for me to just be a designer um, without actually, you know, taking advantage of the fact that I can, I can implement stuff. So I feel like I'm stuck and that I don't think I'm particularly great at any one thing on its own. Sure. Like if I had to, excuse me, burping is probably not helpful. Um, <laughs> it's, it's for the historical record. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I feel like if I had to go get a job in the studio today, I don't think I could be hired as a programmer or as a designer. I don't feel like I'm really um, anything enough that like I could just sit down and do that pure. It's it's only the my weird skill set of doing a little bit of all of it that I bring something to the table. Right. Um, and I don't know how it fit into like a normal studio world anymore. That's you know it's funny because the, the the podcast is probably right before this one is by Chris Delay, the guy who run uh, does introversion software. So Darwinia, Prison Architect. Um, oh, Chris, the Chris. guy that I met. At oh, yeah, yeah, dinner. he was at dinner. Say, That's yeah. right. Oh, yeah, yeah of yeah. course, right, yeah. Cool, so yeah, you met Chris, because I, we interviewed him at that GDC, right? Ah. Um, and uh, That must have been good. He yeah, seemed, it he was... He seemed like an interesting... Yes, it was 
excellent. It was really, really good. Um, and um, he, uh, their studios have had their studios had some crazy ups and downs. Like yeah. they've kind of basically gone out of business almost like two or three times. And one of those times, he went out to interview at companies. And he could he couldn't get a job, like, you know, because it just it is clear that someone like him, someone like you, yeah, it is really hard to fit into a traditional studio framework. Yeah, you know, like it just it's like you kind of want to be doing everything. There isn't really room for a lot of other people on your projects. Period. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a weird one, and I don't know. I I hope we get to keep doing what we're doing because right. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Honestly, if we start if subset games dissolved in some way. Right. Um, I'd probably consider a career change. Really? Yeah. Wow. Or maybe going to like tabletop design or sure. to, That's... To just maybe shift into something adjacent but similar. But I don't think I could just pick up and get a job in the studio. At this yeah. Point. yeah, yeah, sure. Right. Not just because I honestly think it would be difficult to get a job in the studio with the skills I present, but also because I don't I have a ton of interest in doing that. Right, sure. I mean, the thing is, I'm, I'm sure you could get a job, but... Uh, I probably could get hired. <laughs> yeah, clearly, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, you know that it would not be a good situation. No, anymore. I mean, if anything, I feel like I'd be deceiving them. They're like, yeah, oh, go right. look at his resume, that's fine. Yep. And I get there and like, I don't actually know what I'm doing, guys. <laughs> <laughs> a spreadsheet for design? Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, cool. All right, so let's... Uh, so how did Into the Breach start up? Um... Into the Breach started out as a just slow tactics game. Mm. Um, in between projects, we we both kind of just poke at our own stuff. Um, and I, even like right now, we're both poking at random side prototypes. Okay. Um, that we share and talk about and we kind of see where we go. Um, and I was poking at a, a tactics game because I was playing a lot of XCOM. And... Um, it was just a grid-based thing, and it was more like the implementation of a tactics game than like a, this idea is a game. Mm -hmm. um, and it had a focus on... Was it always that small of a grid? I think the first grid was a little bit bigger. Right. But not by much. But the idea is you could see it all on one screen, yes. basically. Yeah. We, it comes from FTL as well. And I guess it came, maybe comes from FTL in the sense of... Um, that horrible experience of zooming out ships and seeing, and then we, we end up being, no, no, no. We'll just, and now you're like, we'll never do that again. All information <laughs> on your screen screen. at all times. So you've never implemented a scroll or at least not, no, for, not for like 15 years or something, but yeah. You know, the sad part, uh, it, it's interesting because we did, um, we, we've spent, I don't know, did Justin talk at all about the prototypes we worked on in the last? Uh, just, just sort of vaguely. But. Yeah, because we, we've done a couple prototypes. Some of them really far down the line yeah. in the last five years. We haven't just been making advanced editions for Into the Breach. <laughs> um, and one of them does involve larger spaces and navigating larger spaces, and it's been a challenge. <laughs> I don't like it. I, I right. definitely prefer the board game design yes. of, like, yeah. there it is. Your game is there. Look at it and make your choices. Yeah. Rather than having to worry about arrows off to the side. And oh, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. It's just one of these inevitable things. I was going to ask you even earlier, like, kind of this, also this question about, you know, there's two of you, you, you know, you kind of need to be doing everything. That also means you, that precludes a lot of games. Like there's a lot of games oh, absolutely. like you asked yeah. that you'd ever make. And yeah. like similar thing with a single screen, like that's a certain aesthetic. Like I, I, it does feel like that's your gut, your guys' aesthetic. So like, yeah, I don't know if you have to stick to that constraint or not, but we'll it's see, tough. We might go back to that prototype. We spent about 15 months on it. Wow. It was pretty far along. Okay. But, um, I think it, we both find it intimidating now to return to. Yeah. And it's weird when you leave something behind for a year mm -hmm. to go back to it, especially when it was an overly ambitious and intimidating project to begin with. Right, okay. Um, it, it's, it's, it's weird. But I do prefer working in a single screen setup for sure. Yeah. And so it was single screen within the breach um, and it had buildings 
and it had robots and it had monsters that so was using the um, assets from FTL. Okay, and, and, and XCOM was like your XCOM was basic like blueprints, like in terms of like this was the the tactics game that you, you know you in were many ways in the responding it, to. I was responding to XCOM, but in many ways. Um, it's not like we were trying to make XCOM. Yes. It's not like I sat down and I'm just going to implement XCOM. Um, and I, one of the elements of it that from the very beginning was that XCOM, you spend so much time hiding behind walls. Yeah. And um, I thought it would be cool to make a mech game that the mech like, stands out from the cover and gets in the way of the monster attacking the building. Ah, uh, sure. And does right. like the hero thing, not mm -hmm. the hiding in cover and popping your head out, but like just the no shoot me don't shoot the the innocents right and like the just that element of anti-cover as well as again if you're talking about responding to xcom the um none of the mischance stuff sure the right. kind of deterministic yeah um aspect. yeah i definitely want to know about that so it was the whole deterministic thing was in from the beginning, very, very beginning. Yeah. yeah um a lot of it was in from the beginning the the more interesting anecdote from the those early stages was that um one of the first weapons that had an enemy being like an artillery that would target like an area and hit like four squares. Um, the way that I implemented it in the code happened to be that when I implemented push, that its target shifted because I um, implemented the targeting to be relative to the enemy. Okay. But that wasn't done like purposefully, yep. like with intent. Mm -hmm. And then the idea that when you push them that it moved the targeting area mm -hmm. was then technically a bug. Yeah. In that it was not done with intent. Um, and But it immediately was like, that's interesting. Right. Um, and it was one of those first kernels that we ended up chasing down because of um, just an accident. Right. Sure. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of stuff in, in, in the breach that's like, okay, X leads to Y and Y leads to Z. And like, this is, this is like the, how you play the game, basically. Right. Um, and so another huge part is making sure the player understands what's going to happen when they, every time they hit the button. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was a, it was a massive part of it. Um, the vast majority of the development was spent on like, how do we make the player understand? Right. It was a, it was a UI game almost more than anything else. Right. Um, which was a constant challenge and, and frustration that every time we put the game in front of someone, they would be like your very first artillery weapon, the one that hits one square in the middle and pushes the three squares around it. Yep. Anytime I'd put that in front of someone, even experienced gamers, um, they wouldn't understand a what the result was for doing things, and b that kind of tangential thought process of if I want to shoot that enemy, I should shoot next to it, right. so then I can push it because mm -hmm. just pushing it, not damaging it, is actually more useful in this situation. Yeah, like it. People just shoot the bad guy. Is the yeah. <laughs> we've been so trained <laughs> so, yeah, to do it's that. It's amazing how few weapons in Into the Breach. That's what they are. Yeah. But when you put a player who's played 100 tactics games, they want to shoot the bad guy. you got to get the enemy health down. That's the goal. And it's not the goal in the breach. Um, and it was what made it interesting and fun to work on, but it was also part of what made it a, a horrendous, difficult challenge for convincing other players it was fun and interesting. When we were showing early prototypes to people, it was getting really negative responses. Mm -hmm. People, like, I remember one of my closer friends that also, he played a crap ton of the early FTL prototypes, was like, I don't get it. Like yeah. this doesn't. I don't even see where you guys are going. This doesn't make any sense at all. What was what was missing at that point? That was super early days. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's hard to say for me to remember exactly which mechanics were present in the game. But we were always working on like that eight by eight grid yeah. and stuff like pushing an enemy um, 
early attacks. I think we experimented a lot more with the structure of um, the player turn. Okay. Like we were at some point enforcing that you had to move all your units oh, and yeah. then shoot with yeah. all your units mm -hmm. um, and things like that, like different ways to what the pattern, not just yet, we end up with XCOM. You, you move or don't move, but when you shoot that- That you're done. You're done. And, and that simplicity worked in the end. But we definitely poked out all, all over the place for like new systems and different ways to approach that. And I think that maybe we were already doing enough weird things with the combat, with the um, predicted attacks and the pushing enemies and that sort of thing, and defending buildings, not yourself, that maybe also changing the way you interact with it was just a step too far. You're making it just too weird of a game at the end of the day there. Right. Or maybe it just wasn't fun. It wasn't. We didn't enjoy it. So we, we, we would have changed it anyway. But it was still disheartening to not get, like, brilliant feedback. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you were definitely... The, you, you eschewed a lot of easy paths, you yeah. know, for this type of game, right? Like, there's... A, there's a, there, um, as I asked about XCOM, because I think a lot of people would be more... Assume the game is going to be is like... Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy Tactics, or uh, uh, what's the? Uh, I'm blanking on the the name of the other one. Um, but, uh, uh, Ogre Tactics? Or? No, the one where it has per, like more permanence. The characters are the characters. Fire Emblem. Love. Fire Emblem. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that goes back to what I was talking about with Justin and I being quite different. Um, okay. I don't so he play those that. games. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he brought that to the table, yeah. um, and he plays the Final Fantasy Tactics, and I bring up Ogre Battle, Ogre Tactics, because that was one that he um, loved when he was younger. And I think, it, uh, I mean, the, the prototype name when I made it was Kaiju. Okay. And then when it, was when it became a collaborative game, it became Kaiju Battle in reference to the Ogre Battle mechanics that yeah. he was talking about maybe bringing in. Um, and so it was, it was, again, like I was coming at it, never was a huge, I played Advanced, Tac um, Advanced Wars. Yeah, on, right. Like, the sure. DS That's another game. great yeah um but it's not a genre i love uh -huh. um i've actually really enjoyed triangle strategy this last year oh really okay which normally again it makes me want to go back and try some of them again because maybe i just didn't give them a proper go um but i've never been a huge fan of the like the jrpg tactic stuff okay what and did so, you like what did you not like about advanced wars for example Advanced Wars I remember liking, and I would okay. have a hell of a time now, because I haven't played it in 25 sure. years, Exciting. talking about what it was I'd liked or didn't like. Um, in the Final Fantasy like tactics realm, um, and even like the beginnings of the, the triangle strategy, I think there's... So you're saying you, Final Fantasy tactics, the reason maybe you didn't like them? Oh, I found I, there were elements of... Um, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to put my finger on yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I'm not okay. even going to try. <laughs> there are definitely elements of too many skills. Yeah. Like, and I didn't love that every character had six skills or whatever, and you had to um, manage them all and level them all up and, and things like that. I'm probably going to sound like an idiot talking about it because I haven't played it sure. really enough to properly right. say. Um, and But it, that was an element. The only reason I mention it is it was an element that was a point of contention and discussion within the breach with how many weapons the match right. you get and that sort of thing. That, that they, was there a thought they'd have more than two? Is that the... Um, I, I mean, there wasn't... I think there may have been a time when they could have more than two, but it was definitely... There was a lot of discussion around and we ended up solidifying the weapon design to be, again, that single screen. Yeah. And you can so quickly know what everything can do. I wanted the player to be able to immediately be able to memorize the three weapons they had and their shape and didn't have to arm it to check if it could hit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, once you understood the three, like I'm um, sort of what a melee weapon, what a projectile weapon, and what an artillery weapon did, they all pretty much fell into those camps. Yes, sure. And so you never had to like check attack radiuses. Right. I, um, we had and and I and I believe Final Fantasy Tactics and like uses a lot of like attack radiuses. Yeah. And you're constantly arming a weapon to see what and where it can hit, and you don't know if you move there if you're definitely going to be able to hit, hit up that. there. Yeah, it's always a big problem with those type of games. And and so I didn't want any of that, yeah. and it was a big um, thing that Justin rightfully loves really creative, weird um, weapons and weapon shapes and stuff. And it was something that we both agreed from the beginning that um, could be interesting because we love like. You know, mixing and matching shapes on top of each other is definitely a core game thing that's fun. Everyone loves dodging shapes and laying shapes on things. Sure. Um, but in practice, I, the single screen nature of it felt nicer when you didn't have to check weapon radius targeting range and stuff. Sure. When it was just, you knew, like a chess piece, Yeah. these units can attack in these orthogonal lines and you never have to worry about double checking. Right. We broke some of those rules for some of the weapons. Right. But mostly we tried to stick to that, which also not just came from a design philosophy, um, but also from a that challenge of introducing the game to people. Sure. And the, every time we put it in front of people, they were confused. And so if we simplify the weapons as much as possible, right. then we reduce their confusion because we're not teaching as much. Right. Um, and a lot of the end of the bridge game design was driven by like that mentality. Yeah. Um, this might be a difficult question to answer, but you kind of it sounds like you kind of set for yourself some kind of like odd goals at the start of the project mm-hmm. you know like you wanted to uh you know you wanted the 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 heroes to be you know bl- you know potentially blocking attacks and you know sacrificing themselves right and that um you know you, you know you can't just it's not a game about just knocking down their their, their hit points yeah. um and it would be super you know it would be a super tight game How, why did you choose these goals like where did this all come from um from a th- pure thematic standpoint, there was a lot of superhero movies at the time mm-hmm. that were destroying the city and not really seeming to care at all. Right. Okay. Um, which I think actually superhero movies have since, like, actually referenced themselves started and do, started yeah. to do things with. Yep. Sure. Um, and I think they even managed to do that before we got into the reach out the door. But um, it, that, there was an element of that. Of, like, I wanted to make a. A tactics game that the buildings and the people were mm-hmm. the things that mattered and that you should be actually caring when a building falls down it's not just oh environmental effects and and destructible terrain it's destructible terrain that has people on them and that's bad um and so that was a, a big draw from just a pure theme standpoint right um and then what was the other uh, that you'd be sacrificing yourself, and that you're not you're not just going to you're not just trying to yeah n- knock down their hip points. Yeah, that kind of indirect nature of it. Yep. the indirect nature of it um grew from the design as okay. as we worked on it, and as we worked on um having the enemies like queuing up their attacks, so you can see what they're going to do. It just started to make more sense to have the a lot of indirect interaction, partly because um when. The enemy is queuing up an attack and is targeting the player. Mm-hmm. You can just step out of the way. Yeah. And so it actually only worked as a game. That the thing that was a problem was it, the enemy's queuing up attacks that um, to things that couldn't move. Yeah. When was the uh, enemies being visible, attacks visible? Pretty early on. Pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so everything kind of knocked on from there. Yeah. When and, did you when did you decide to because that that's extremely unusual. So when Yeah, why we committed to it? I yeah. don't know. Really? <laughs> it's, it's like it, as these decisions are made, like it, it was interesting. Like I, I think is the best answer I could give to any of that is that once we had it in the game and we looked at it and we thought that's unique and interesting, let's see if we can make that work. But it's true that it's like a um you, we locked in two or three design elements right. and why we locked in and committed to them and said, no, absolutely. We are not changing this. This is intractable. I do not know. Maybe it was because there was fertile territory. Uh, because it's interesting here. This, the, the, it comes from this idea of like, oh, movies do this. And it's kind of interesting that they never talk about this. And so let's start with here because I see that in the game, you know, there's like narrative elements about that, but it's not really that important in the game. Really? No. Um, um I think into the, which ended up a cold game. Sure. I think, and it was not intentional. I think that the design challenge that we're talking about mm -hmm. became so difficult and that we had ended up getting so lost in the weeds of making the design work right. that we kind of lost touch with the theme. Right. And that we lost touch with putting as much of the atmosphere and everything that we wanted. Because FTL, um, I think, does a lot more for putting a player into the fantasy of a captain ship and yeah, everything sure. that yeah, chaos, yeah, yeah. and it really leans into the theme. Well, I think into the breach because of it, the nature of its design. Um, and it's more of a puzzle game, more chess, like more, um, abstract in many ways in what you're doing that the, the strong emphasis on theme just got left behind because there's only two of us and we didn't have someone else full time being like, no, we got to do this, this, and this to make sure we're still selling the fantasy. Right. Um, and I think that it is a weird side effect that wasn't necessarily, um, intended it just kind of fell by the wayside yeah yeah um yeah and it's it's like so you know you started there and it put you on this path uh man what was i trying to say why did we stay on the path i mean i i kind of assume you stayed on the path because you were the game felt different from other games yeah maybe uh, right new for the second new is definitely something we do right not because just because we find interesting things that way. Yeah, like this is different, so let's just poke at this more. Um, the And I think Justin and I both, another reason we work well together for whatever reason, is we're both pretty good at seeing like our crappy prototypes and being excited about the potential and being able to move forward with the potential without actually knowing where we're going. Mm -hmm. And if we tell other people or show other people prototypes, we can't tell them where, because we don't know where we're going either. But for whatever reason, we can unspokenly forge ahead in the direction we're going both believing there's something down there without actually knowing where we're going right um and i think that um being able to work with justin who can do that with me and we're both doing it together is weird but it, yeah. it works for us and so we don't necessarily have a lot of intent in why we thought those mechanics were important just something about it for us felt right, right. and interesting so here's the thing about the, the the civilians and the buildings and whatnot so you know even though like it doesn't it didn't end up being like the center of the the narrative no what it did for you mechanically is it created this separate uh, alternate hit point system yes right and that to me i think is hugely important for how the game works yes right? and the like, interesting thing about that from the development standpoint was that it was not that for the longest time Really? Yes. Okay. We struggled a lot with um, how do you make the player give a crap about the buildings? Okay. Because you can, for all that, I, we can talk grand thoughts about protecting the innocents. And at the end of the day, a video game, 
someone sits down to play it and they care about if they win or lose. So initially... And if it means shooting down every yeah. goddamn civilian on the board <laughs> they, to win, they absolutely will. So initially you thought maybe it was going to work more thematically, like people would protect the buildings because the like you made, you you would let them see the, the people inside or something mm -hmm. or they were like saying, please save us or whatever. Partially, yes. Yeah, we okay. always knew we had to tie it to some game mechanic. Yeah, We're not sure. going to just let it float there on yeah. its own. Um, but it was a little bit more like... You're going to have to repair them or you're going to have to, or you have a morale system that kind of influences other factors. Sure. And that, um, there was just so many other, we're also playing a lot more on grand strategy, like more like XCOM where you have a big strategy yes. outside of the core combat, which I'm sure you talked to Justin about. Yep. Um, but the, and so it was a lot of stuff incorporating into that, none of which was as much of a game loss state uh -huh. as we ended up doing it. And it was really like nothing else works. Yeah. We want to make the character... Was there a reason you were resisting that? Or he just not thought of it? Well, there's a thematic problem in Would terms you... of why on earth destroying three buildings <laughs> drops your health down <laughs> the and game. then you lose. Yeah. Like, and that was a big part of it in terms of morale and stuff. Even like having you loot, what? The people got too sad, sad. so we <laughs> gave up. And, and, and unlike Ticket to Ride, I wasn't... We're not happy. Neither of us are happy with just a complete hand wave. We need a, at least a thin excuse on top of things right. i think there was an element of that and an element of we couldn't get her out of our own butts of like your characters are one important your characters die and then yeah. you lose that's so interesting because i never considered that to be a problem the game just told me that like you know you have this many uh they're not stars they're look like little energy bolts or yeah we call them um it's the it's the power grid yeah and, and i can i can tell the power grid, you guys had this whole yeah. narrative in the background that the yeah. power grid and the power grid falls blah 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 we but don't, to we, me i like it's just okay there's points yeah, there's and points, the points yeah. are going to go exactly, down yeah. if they get to zero they, that's bad the yeah. points are from the buildings okay i got it right <laughs> it's like, a player exactly like um and it's so you know this i see this coming up this is a problem that happens with me myself a lot you know you, you get too wrapped up and like this has to make sense and it's so weird because games do need to make sense right you do want the theme to to teach kind of the mechanics but at this other sort of fundamental level, level like games don't have to make sense no. as long as like the thing works and the, the 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 solution gets to the simplest point that it needs to be yeah right and then there are games do that like i talk about theme and integrating it but you can see all over the place in ftl and in the breach where we're like the design needs this. The, yeah. And the design is the king. We're not making a narrative game. Yeah. We're not making like a, a something where that's the whole purpose. We're making a game that is a mechanically rich like strategy game. And if that means it needs to make less sense, then we finally give up and do it. But we're not now always doing it um, yeah. willy-nilly. Yeah. We're definitely... That's the reason we don't have a strong narrative from the beginning for any of these because we know that we're going to have to make dramatic changes mechanically. Yeah. And so we're going to have to make up lore and theme after we're all done with all of this yeah and there's also a line between yeah like e explaining the lore of why the power grid mantle matters right. versus having a strong theme of like your like the more emotional theme versus the like lore background theme yeah i don't care quite as much about the lore background yeah. it's more about just the how yeah. it all feels and i can still get that like okay i don't want the civilians to die Good, and it sort of all kind of works yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in that sense yeah like we're on the same page right it was a similar problem with like ftl and the final boss makes no you're running away from the fleet <laughs> and then there's the final boss you blow him up and you win right and like, yeah yeah where did the fleet go right and um, it was much easier just 
don't talk about it and don't overthink it. But it's yeah. a game that relies so much on its narrative, the yeah. player narrative, yeah. um, that it's funny that it makes no sense narratively. Yeah. Um, oh, and, man. So many games are like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> um, another thing about that, that specific system is that I, I find this time and again, again, with my designs is like the thing I end up with ends up being so dramatically simpler than every other thing I tried before. Yes. Right. You know, because yeah. I'm like, hey, like the buildings are the hit points. And then that all everything falls out so easily from that because yeah. it's like oh they gave in your position matters and shielding makes sense and now pushing becomes really important and like all that stuff like great yeah. um, and you know you had you had that before because it still had these complicated systems but obviously the simplest thing is just like if enough buildings die the game's over yeah you know the end yeah and it's good if the player can immediately grasp a lost state yeah it's actually something I find frustrating with Frax, um, some of Fraxis's work and the save. John Fork genre mm. and XCOM is the I find myself giving up before, before I you lose. actually lose. Oh yeah, for and sure. And it's fine. I love those games, so I shouldn't complain about it. Yep. But I have a like a thing where that I prefer a lost state that is a lost like a yeah. actual lost state. It's super hard to do in those games because they're so woolly and big and kind of sprawling. Um because like um like some of those, some of the Civ games have had kind of obscure victory conditions of like there's a cultural victory or a religious victory, and it's pretty opaque yeah. to the player if another and AI. And something you're not even thinking about yeah, until the end. Maybe. Like the worst is if you're playing the game and then it's just suddenly the game is like, hey, guess what? You just lost to a religious Cause victory. Because they lost, a, they launched a rocket. They did some other thing yeah. over there that you had no, <laughs> and it's like, what? Oh, man. Um, and so I think that's why it's hard to have these kind of like really dramatic, simple. It's hard. Yeah, I don't have an answer for for those <laughs> games and what they should do instead. They need to do what they do. Yeah, I mean, with with Old World, we did this the simplest, dumbest thing, which is just there is just victory points for the AI. Like you you can win with the ambition system, but that's not something that the AI has. It's it's just for purely for the player. The player has this narrative path to victory, but then for the AI, there's just points. That's right. Good. Doing it asymmetrically like, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the, you know, once the AI, you know, the AI gets points from their cities and from wonders and whatever, and when they cross a certain threshold, they win. So you have basically that long to, um, I mean, you can also, you can actually also win with points, but basically you're trying to win. Like the yeah. real victory is like yeah. the, the ambition. Well, victory points are tried and true. Yes. Board game mechanic. <laughs> it's like we got this in our toolbox. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it, it, it's, it's simple. It works. It's kind of like health for the buildings. Like at the end of the day, Yep. There's the four things the games do, and yeah. you can fall back on them, and it's not going to break your game. It's probably going to make it work faster and easier. And yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I know there's two things that I definitely want to talk about. I want to talk about the, the meta layer and then talk about the um, the undo system. Um, the, what was the first one? The meta layer. Or the, like, I know you, you, know, you guys have a lot of difficulty um, connecting the missions. Right. Yes. Um, and I, I don't know the term, the meta layer. Meta. Got yeah. it. Sorry, yeah. I was having metal. Um, I feel like meta game nowadays though refers to like oh sure and yeah systems and things like that. So right. it's harder now to name the yeah. strategy. I don't layer. like the fact that that people use the term meta for essentially strategy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, what's the game's meta? I'm like, uh, I don't know. That sounds really vague and abstract. Like, <laughs> oh, you mean what strategies do people use? It's like okay, like we already had to work for that. Right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah we struggled a lot with that because we wanted something like XCOM. yeah um and we found it extremely difficult to design something like that i'm very impressed that you design things like that <laughs> because i think that, that well i don't do the XCOM games well no but no no i'm not XCOM, but i'm um, saving old i wouldn't say those games have meta layers 
because the um, game is just uh, the game. You're right. Excuse me. There's two things I'm talking about here. Yeah. One of them is you have XCOM where you've got two games in one. Yes. But the other one, and the one I'm talking about when it comes to like Civ as well as the XCOM, um, is that grand strategy layer, mm-hmm. which is the entirety of the game for Civ. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's incredibly hard to design for because of its difficulty of like, it's not fun immediately. You need to kind of invest a year or whatever. I don't know how long you've spent on them that before it clicks together and right, sure. and works as a game. Yeah. And there's no small part. There's you, no small building block. They start yeah. when you start with like when you're making a roguelike in a lot of the more traditional forms of roguelike. Um, you are just adding one piece at a time, and right. it's and that first mechanic you're having it's fun in the first day of development. Mm. Um, and with a grand strategy like from XCOM or a 4X game, that isn't fun for a long, long time. And you have to have that faith in it. It's going to be fun. Like I have confidence in this design and confidence in the strategy that this is all going to fall together in a really interesting, cool way by the time we get to the end of the road. Um, and Justin and I, were, I there didn't have enough faith in the designs or we're impatient or we weren't good at it. But every time we tried another big layer strategy like that, it felt flat, wasn't interesting. We didn't like it and we'd cut it out. And we did like three or four of them. Right. Um, there was one where like a map, a big map that you could travel between cities on the map. Um, and the enemies were influencing. It was, you know, node control. I think there was some yep, pandemic sure. pulled in yep. um, as they as they would explode and build up threat and stuff. And then um, we did like a, a small city where you're just in the one city, but there's like districts. And each yep. of those eight by eight grids would have been a district. Mm. And you had to, over a long time, manage the city. They, the, the first one was more civvy. Well, this one's Mark's coming yep. in that it was like balancing resources to repair things and to research new things and that whole system. Um, and both of them just felt hollow and like it, you wanted to get back into the game. Mm. Like, was there oh, just too much to manage there? Too much stuff or? I, it was intangible in okay. terms of why we didn't have faith in it. So we were talking about before and that Justin and I can have a blind faith in an idea and forge through to its completion. But part of that blind faith comes from that it is immediately, something is immediately interesting about it. Mm-hmm. And we never managed to find something interesting to add to that strategy layer that um, was as immediately like grabbed us and made us think that this could work. We just need to figure out how to make it work. The hard part about strategy layers in these type of games is the, the the sense of like, should this be fun on its own? Like if the tactical layer didn't like, yeah, Total War is the only game I can think of that sort of has this sort of working. Like I don't really like the battles period. So I only play, you can automate the battles and it works. Right. It's yeah. so the game still basically functions. Yeah. Right. Whereas I imagine, you know, I don't, you probably, I, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, were you trying to make a strategy layer where it's like, okay, this, this, this is fun in and above itself. Right. I think they all are. Like even like I think I could play the XCOM strategy layer by itself. By right. itself, sure. Um, I think I like resource management enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it obviously wouldn't be the same game or be nearly as successful. Right. But um, I think I enjoy researching things and and plugging different points into different places right. to min max and build out to survive. Like that game is fun to me. Right. That um, I don't. I think that you don't need both games to survive, and I think they should. But obviously, they also need to immensely complement one another. Yeah, and it's yeah that, that that's a gargantuan design to not just make one fun game is hard. Yeah, to make two fun games is even harder. To make two fun games that interlock is 
is yeah. you, you've become exponentially challenging on its own yeah. side. And there's a certain amount where they have to be better than just good games because they, I mean, you make up for it by them interlocking. Like that's what makes, makes yes. It, in makes some ways the interlock, more. like it actually brings out the yeah. either one of them on their own. If they're just two like arbitrarily pretty good games, you'd be better off just playing one. So you could really keep your mind in that game. Yeah. You know, like it, the, the, otherwise it's, it's, it's just keeps snapping your mind. Cause yeah, we had the problem in the breach. It was like whiplash yeah. in, in the, we had these really tight, small battles that felt prompt and meaningful. Every decision was immediately followed up with its output of, and how, why that mattered. Well, then you'd switch over to the strategy layer and it'd be much slower pace. Your decisions didn't have the same weight. Um, because it was thinking more long-term instead of short-term gains. And it, it was a mental whiplash, which is why we ended up with what we did, where you're just a very briefly popping out of battles before going back into it. Right. Giving your brain, a, more giving your brain a brief break rather yeah. than having your brain shift gears, which is what, like, an XCOM. The other game, Total War on XCOM, what else even pulls that off? <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it, it's hard to do. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's... Generally speaking, when you have two games like that, the 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 quote unquote right way to do it, you know, but you know, like, it, it is to basically one of the two sides need to be subservient to the other. Yeah. Right. Like your strategy layer is just the way you get people from one battle to the next. Yeah. Like that's really all it is. You're yeah. just basically choosing your next battle, and hey, you can upgrade yeah. your things a little bit, but yeah. you're not you're not doing these these crazy long term investments or yeah. you know because we effectively cut the strategy layer out of a game. We, right. We, sure. We, we, <laughs> to call out the strategy layer at that point was it would be generous. Yeah. yeah. You you know you're you figured that part out right. Yeah. And there aren't as many examples of games that go in the other direction. But I could probably think of them if I had the like where you have like a rich strategy properly layer. full like games. On both sides right yeah um like you know there's some yeah i mean there's some well at any rate um how do you find to to go back to what i was talking about on the overlap with what you design um that challenge of because um off world was the same idea that like that wouldn't have been fun for ages right how quickly are you finding a game that you can iterate on versus... well so off world was still a short game right it's an rts yeah right? so it's like 20 to 30 minutes long and we started as a multiplayer game, which helped a lot. That does help a lot. A lot. Yeah. Like there, because there is a, so we do have a, a strategic layer in the campaign. Like when you play the campaign to off world, you're on Mars and there's nodes and you're like, you know, you're kind of choosing your next, the next, the next place you're going to do, you're going to do a mission essentially. And the money you get from your success in one mission, you're able to build and give you upgrades for the next one. And the thing lasts about seven. I don't remember. I did put some time into off world, but it's been too long. Yeah. I, my memory is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so but I do, but it is a large complex or it, you say it's an RTS that's played shortly, but I feel like the design is something that you kind of need the full design in to be fun. To some extent, but um uh to some extent i mean but early on you just needed um you just needed you know a map you needed your headquarters you needed to be able to claim claim territory you needed a, a free market you and there are to, some yeah you need a free market like that's a, <laughs> easy to say <laughs> right. hard to actually like make it work yeah um it, it's <laughs> uh it takes a while i mean i think old world is a more uh better example of like yeah, it takes a long time before yeah. all those things, you know, because you could get the science and the combat in, but then you don't have infrastructure, you don't have yeah. the buildings. And you just you have to, and any one part on its own 
is not interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like we did a really bizarre strategy with, with Old World where we built a, like the entire game without addressing the characters or the events or the narrative yet. So when you play Old World, you can actually hit a switch and you turn off all of the characters and dynasties and events and narratives off and you can play like a version of the game without that. And it's it's not like we necessarily think that's a great way to play the game. It's more like that's an artifact of the way we built the game. Yeah. That we did all that stuff first because yeah. doing everything at the same time was just too much. Yeah. So we're like, okay, if we just build the inner core game and then we we kind of will think of the, the characters and the events as sitting on top of that. Right. So in a way that is kind of like our extra layer that we put on. Yeah, yeah. Like the character, like the characters and events would not be fun by themselves. Yeah. Right? It was only how it interacted with everything yeah. else. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think Total War and XCOM set a standard that's really difficult for a lot of people to, to meet. And yeah. I'd be careful. I'd advise people not to try. No, yeah, I would too. For sure. <laughs> I like, I definitely like our way of developing at the end of the day and I should just embrace it that we do prefer it that you make something and it can be interesting within a week yeah. and then you add another mechanic to it and it makes it more interesting and right. you add another mechanic to it, it makes it more interesting yeah and the strategic layer is, is more of a question of like we've got these battles okay great now how do we give a player a good four hour experience or yeah. whatever yeah. yeah that question how did and we always want to be shorter into the week and FTL I was always annoyed sure. like the 20 to 30 minute range that yep. and then a lot of games do do I don't know why we couldn't do it but both of them ended up larger experiences than we ever intended well I don't think of it that way I mean uh, into the breach battle is like 15 minutes less than that I mean, it could be, it just depends on, well, or a lot more. Or a lot more. <laughs> if you get out the graph paper. Um, but, you know, the individual battles are. The individual like, battles work. Very little but like size pieces. The full structure, yeah. the full game is. But you can't, you couldn't, I don't see how you could stretch. If you, you can't stretch it into the breach battle to 30 minutes, like normally, it would just. No, no, no. My issue is more that I wanted like a full run to be like 30 minutes. Okay. I wanted I wanted to make a game where a full run was like thirty minutes for ages. Like I wanted to make a lunchtime break game, and FTL and the breach both ended up bigger than they. And there's an element of that when we're making our games that we don't know what we're making, and we just let the game be what the game is. Yeah. And if it's we didn't know into the breach turns were going to be four turns. Like sure. When we started. Oh yeah, it, that's a good question. When like, we started it, the, how did, how long did it get to there? We got to this point where that's a really extreme choice. It was an extreme choice. It didn't start that way in any way. Like it. Um, it started traditional, we like to defeat the end. This was back before we even probably nailed down the health bar thing, where you just need to defeat the enemies, um, and and then you win. And then there was an element of like chasing down enemies isn't fun. Yeah. I hate that in XCOM too. Like sure. The, oh, the, yeah. the last, the first twenty turns and the last twenty turns, like we didn't want those turns. We yeah. wanted to just to yeah. turn one, um, and the small board helps with that. I mean, yeah. You're throwing everyone in the same place and saying go, um, and then. Another another great example of how like it doesn't need to make sense, right? Like why no. <laughs> what at four turns does the game just end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well they run away. Yeah, it's, they run away. Right? Why? Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter how you do and they run away. And they it. were just about to die. Oh, they just they ran away. Nah. <laughs> it's just what they do. They get bored. They gotta go eat. I don't know. Um and yeah, it just definitely served the design that it just felt right and it felt it made every turn feel meaningful. Yeah. Um, which was fun. And then you you do get a little like fatigued if if you do like an eight turn map. Yeah, it didn't. It doesn't. It feels a little bit too long. A little bit boring. The same terrain. The same. Like the enemies. There's only certain places it can attack from on any given map. And once you kind of solve two or three of them, you don't really want to do it over and over and over again. And so it worked well to then pull the player out, 
take a breather, and then yeah. drop back in for another four turns. Yeah, I don't think you can force a game into a pacing that you want. You can't. No, you, you know? just you, you have just, to follow it. Like, oh, this is fun. Okay, now how do we? What do we do now? You know? Yeah. Like, what's what's the what's the best we can do with the what we got? You know? Um, yeah. And and especially when you're working in a, like a really iterative design process on a thing that's kind of new in like weird ways, it's just too hard to actually know what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about undo. And undo. Um, yeah. So uh, when did that come? You guys embraced undo. Oh, we hundred percent embraced undo. It's because there were projects like uh, like you guys and uh, Invisible Ink. Um, and I think I was right a couple other ones that were... Oh, Invisible Ink was absolutely an influence in other groups as well. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, that we're starting to, to mess around with this concept of letting players, you know, well, Prince of Persia, obviously, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, letting people, you know, rewind time. Um, and so what was the, what was the, your initial idea behind including it? Um, part of it came from a teaching tool more than anything. Okay. They like the, um, putting it in front of players as we talked about and it really struggling with seeing them struggle. Um, we thought that including some guardrails like an undo so that they can feel more open to trying strategies and trying weapons without thinking they're going to ruin their battle because they do it um, was a big part of it. And as well as, well, I hoped that stuff like, cause it, well, I hoped that there would be a, uh, Into the Breach has two modes of undo. Yeah, there's two different types of undo. And it's important to kind of separate them out. Yeah. And while I had hoped that the weapons um, and the area attack things and like the attack radii and everything that I was talking about before um, would be obvious to the player eventually. Before they fully got on board with that, it was important to have the undo move as a really super inconsequential, like you can move your units around as much as you want. Right. Because then you could quickly see like if the attack will actually yeah. do what you want it to do. And that's only really helpful because you guys have such a good system for showing what's going to happen after, like what's going to happen when you attack. Exactly. This character is so going to move here and it's going to hit this building and so on and so forth. And there would be the hope that if we let you move your character and then you get to see that UI placed on the um, the board, so you see where it happens if you move to that location. Then it felt like that was a really generous amount of space, and it wasn't a problem to give them um, too many undos on that. So you mm -hmm. do whatever you want on that. And then the full undo turn that we gave, which is the post attack um, undo, um, felt larger, and mm -hmm. it was there was um we didn't want it to feel. We didn't want, because way back to FTL, we wanted your decisions to feel consequential. Right. We wanted your decisions to matter, the, your upgrade choices, your targets, anything you're doing. Like, it's not just quick save, quick load yeah. until you solve the, the battle and then you leave. Mm -hmm. um, and so combining that with also admitting that, like, Into the Breach was inherently kind of a puzzle game. Mm -hmm. And it was a puzzle game that was pretending to be a strategy game. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't a puzzle game. Right. And that when you're doing a crossword or a Sudoku or whatever, you don't make the player... No, you do it in pen and you're not allowed to cross out a word. Like, that's just mean. That wouldn't be fun. Yeah. Um, and so there's an element that you kind of got to embrace the puzzle nature of it and that um, letting the player do that at least once. And the once was the compromise of we want to let them do it, but we still do want their actions to matter. Okay. And so we don't want to completely remove them having to commit to things and what they do has. And when they shoot something and it hits the building and they didn't realize that and, and the power grid goes down and, and people die or whatever, like, I feel like it would be doing the game a disservice and what we're kind of going for to then let the player say, oops, never mind. 
Okay. Because like we wanted the collateral damage and the consequences of, of a war and a battle and weapons like these to be meaningful and to right. have like those moments where you feel terrible. Oops, I didn't mean for that pilot to die. Oops, I didn't mean for that building to get destroyed. Um, I think are part of the atmosphere element of the game. Um, if I were doing it again today, I mean, we didn't put it in in the advanced edition, um, but I would consider a more generous undo system. Right. Maybe put it in as a toggle, maybe, I'm not sure. It's definitely, and I feel terrible, that I cheat as a developer. <laughs> <laughs> I will absolutely open up the console and, and force an undo turn. Sure. Um, but the problem is I can't disentangle that from just that. if I couldn't do it. Right. Like the fact that I know how to open the console and the command to do it, the fact that it's an option changes the way I play the game sometimes. Right. And if I had given the player the right to do it whenever they wanted, it would change the way they play the game. And I don't, and you can't put it, the power back in the box, like in the yeah. sense that um, it could have disabled my ability to do that, I guess, and experimented more. Right. But um, it's, it's hard to have the full context then. Yeah. And I still think it's for the best. And, but I don't know if I would be more generous or not. Well, it's interesting to hear that you're considering it. Um, because I was going to kind of ask that basically, like, would you, would you consider doing undo differently? You know, if you were to do it again or whatever. I'm not sure what Justin said, obviously. Um, <laughs> well, you'll find out. <laughs> to my to my memory of the decision, I was more on the side of more undos and he was more on the side on less undos. Okay. And the once per battle was a compromise. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been ages. And if, and if he thinks like it was the other way around, absolutely. Yeah. I could see myself being... No, we need the player's decisions to matter. That's absolutely a stand I would also take. So and yeah. I could be wrong. But um, I don't think... Did, did he say he would put in? He now says that even though he felt like it should have limited views back then, now he's he would be willing... He, he would support unlimited undos. Yeah, neither... And both of us would say that right now when talking to you. Neither one of us ever brought it up as something to add the advanced for the advanced edition. Well, maybe I can use this opportunity to broker so this idea, <laughs> bring you two together. I, so let me put my cards on the table. I think that the game would be much better if it had unlimited undos. Um, because I, I would I would absolutely do it as an option because I think there's a lot of how this interacts with, 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 per, with permadeath and just the idea that like there is no... Because some games just let you save whenever you want to and then it's kind of like, well, that's... Now it's no longer. It's just a different framework, but in in a mode. But when you have when you have completely deterministic combat, and you have a few moves, and you have um, you know big consequences, right? Like, and you have this game where you know the, the tension just keeps ratcheting up, right? Like when you're like two or three hours into an into the breach run, like at that point, you really don't want to make a silly mistake. Yeah. Like. To me, all of those factors point to giving the player a very generous undo system. And to me, it's it when I play Old World, I mean, I was not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily have said this before we did Old World, but we had a developer put in undo as, as almost like a, I mean, obviously to prevent misclicks, but also almost as like a debug feature of like, but this, yeah, you, you just go forward and backwards. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we use it all the time now. And I just saw the way it changed people play the game yeah. in the, it's, it's a different way to learn the game. Yeah. Right? yeah, you're like, sure. I wonder what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I'll, now I'll just try. I won't. Yeah. I won't. My first step is not going to go to the Cilipedia or open up a web browser and try to figure out. Yeah, I'm just going to assign this guy it, to yeah. the city, yeah. this governor to the city. Find out what happens. If I like it, 
I'll keep it. If I don't, I'll rewind it. But then that's the trouble is just how far back do you go? As opposed to within the breach, with something like yours, which is a more direct um, turn system, the end of the breach, we have the reset turn in the battle. Yes. We don't have any like, oops, don't go into the battle. Like, would you go as far as to be like, not only can I undo in the battle, but I can go multiple turns back in the battle. Would you go, I can completely pull back from the battle because that battle is a terrible choice? Right. Yeah, no, no, no. I would, I mean, there's definitely choices to be made. Yeah. And I would, I would just say, let the player rewind to the start of the turn. Just on that turn, you can go back as many times as you want. Yeah. yeah. And I would, I would make it do it just like a backwards and a forwards button. So you can just. Scrub, oh, not only could you undo your... it, but you can just yeah, yeah. put it back. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is like, these are like programming questions, right? But the, I mean, that's, that part is really not necessary. Um, it just, it it's not, it's nice. not just a part. I mean, it's a theme. It is a theme question. Sure. Like we really wrap up the undo turn. Like, I don't even know if we would have had undo turn if it wasn't for the theme of the game already dealt with time travel. Sure. Right. And the fact that we can so easily wrap it up in the story, we can have a little animation, the characters can say something yep. like, it's not just a game mechanic. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it would be if you allow a game to yeah shuffle back and forth quickly. I don't know. I guess it, as I said, in the breach, the theme isn't that strong by the yeah. end, and but, so maybe embracing the puzzle nature of it would yeah. be. Yeah. But yeah, I wouldn't go back to previous turns. It just doesn't feel necessary. Like if you get to the end of the turn, like the problem is it does. And actually, it's the only thing we have talked about doing. But the that? UI challenge, we we ultimately decided not to do it. Um, we want to be able to let you under the turn at the beginning of the next turn. To the beginning of the last turn, because there's that element when all the enemies do oh, their thing. Oh, I see. And that if you somehow get it wrong or you yeah. didn't realize that was what yeah. was going to happen, you want to undo, and that's the one moment that you you can never undo. Yeah. Like we the, um, and so for new players and for experienced players, like there's it's one thing to make a mistake with your weapon, and okay, you have the undo, but if you see something, you make a mistake on how you interpret the enemies. There's no way out of that. Yeah. Um, and that's a frustration that we've never liked. Yeah, the, right. I, yeah, that is, that's a definitely a fiddly part of the game. You have that little thing where it's like, this is the order of their moves, but like that's... that's, that's not, and, and the advanced tough. edition, when you have things pulling things, there's a lot more enemy yep. motion skills, which mm -hmm. we purposely avoided in the normal version of the game. Um, the way they chain sometimes will still shock yep. me on a end turn. Yep. I'll end up losing more than I expect. So yeah, I would just undo to the the end of the the beginning of the previous turn. just include what we have now but um unlimited is what you would do or would you include what, it okay what i would do is i would get rid of the idea i mean you could leave reset turn just as like a simple way to do it uh -huh. but i would i would let you you know walk back your actions yeah. to the beginning of the current turn and the beginning of the previous turn oh so you and that would be and that would be the solution to that, what i'm yeah, talking about exactly there. that's how you could go over change your window to this sliding yeah. window that you can always because slide. right if you presumably if you're if if you got surprised by what how the ai ordering worked you'd also want to go back to the beginning of that turn to then do something different yeah right yeah. but you wouldn't want to ever go back to i mean who knows but <laughs> it does it doesn't seem like it's really necessary to go back to turns even before that that just seems no. like at that point too much you're replaying the battle yeah you've, you've added a restart button because yeah. of how big there's four turns yeah if you go right. more than two turns back you've just hit reset battle yeah and there's a point to this right like i don't i don't want to i wouldn't want to give players the ability to just completely like okay i have to solve this puzzle in the most optimal way it's just to let people play the game with their hands like learn the game with their hands and obviously 
also misclicks in I, I've had experiences where like I accidentally shot the acid at my guys and you know, killed yeah, a bunch of my yeah, guys. Yeah, and did. then my you know my whole run is over like, you know, like maybe I had the reset, maybe I didn't, but like, you know, obviously like avoiding that is a plus too. So on some ways I agree with you a lot. And I agree that like especially because it's a puzzle game and you said thinking with your hands, it's it's like solving yeah. you know, everyone not everyone can solve a puzzle entirely in their head. Yeah. You're providing a workspace yeah. at that point, which is great and would be helpful. But um, on the other hand, you don't really, yeah, I think you would. You said you'd be wary of it. I think it would absolutely happen within the breach that you'd get people even more stuck on solving it. But the thing is, and you don't really, but that's the thing, you don't really need to solve. There isn't that a huge reward for, like, what does even solving mean? Because, solving means completely um, I mean, you want the, you want mitigating all the, the damage at the very least. Right. You want all the, the stars for the, the level or whatever. And the stars for the level. Um, and, uh, but, but, those are very chunky goals. That's not like I need, I got 98%. I want to get 99%. That's true. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 yeah. it's not but that. But you said yourself that a battle takes, I said less than 10 minutes and you said, and sometimes. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of, well, but th that's why it takes so long. Because you're not willing to commit to it if you can't experiment. Yeah. More. But what if experimenting with it more means that you're more willing to properly expand? Now you're given the tools to really dive into this yeah. and you're not just going to have to say, no, we're forging ahead with what I see or what I've got. Well, look, these are these are. But this is why you have to implement things. Before yeah, these you are tough. These are tough design questions. I would say that I think I think it's safe now. I don't know what I would have told you five years ago. Yeah. I think it's safe now. This is a mature game. People know whether they like no, it or not. Add it as I would, I, and I wouldn't make it the default. I would just add it as an option, yeah. right? Like I think it, it because I I do think there's probably a sizable number of people that that do not continue playing because the consequences of a bad decision or just the frustration of like, the game gave me all the information I needed to know that, you know, I made this move here and the, the building got shot and I actually had all the information. I just didn't quite parse it, parse it correctly. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of upside there. So. I don't think you're completely wrong. <laughs> so. It's just so hard without any of it. And it's so hard to predict all the knock-on effects that yeah. things have and how people would play the game. Yeah, I definitely think it, like a really thorough embracing of being able to shuffle back and forth would really change the texture of the game. But I could just, you know, you get attached to things. I mean, like I, can definitely, I can definitely just speak from experience that I thought... I thought undo would be a bigger problem. Then, like, yeah. yeah. And I you thought, found being as generous as you can was shockingly... Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I thought we were going to have to have a more complicated system of like, oh, if you reveal stuff, then we'll yeah. have to disable yeah. it. And yeah. like, we'll do this. And I, like by default, what one I think one strength as a designer is I don't, I don't do things until I have to. Mm -hmm. And I was just like... I was like, well, this is, we'll just see what happens. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it, this, the simplest solution might be the best one. We're, so we're similar on that. In yeah. the... Never do something before you have to. Yep. Always do the dumbest solution before you do yep. the smart one. Yep. Yeah. And it was just really interesting to see. In fact, like eventually people asked for undo in multiplayer, right? And we we added it to multiplayer, and people play competitive multiplayer games with, with un, undo. undo. Yeah. I mean, only asynchronously, not not games yeah. where you're because like <laughs> my brain would explode. That's <laughs> that's impossible. But people who play the play by cloud games. Like yeah, they're like it's such we're so used to it being part of the game that like we. We really feel like it doesn't feel right to play each other, and as long as you trust your opponent, I mean, there's the only thing they can do that's kind of like iffy is they can kind of explore parts of the map and like, oh, I'd rather explore over here, right? And so it's it's not great, but like you know, everything in everything game design is like a question of trade offs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the benefit there definitely outweighs the cost. And we do we as the longer we've been developers, the longer we've found 
just err on the side of being nice to the player. Sure. Yeah. Oh, Even yeah. when you're making a mean game, you can still err on the side of being a nice player in so many other ways yeah. that makes it function better yeah. as a mean game. Um, and that's a good example. Of I mean, you could, yeah. that's pretty, a, a pretty consistent trend line. If you look at game design from like 1980 to today, right? Like, <laughs> they, I don't know. You said a lot of mean, mean choices. <laughs> I feel like back in the eighties and nineties when it yep. came to things they did to the player, but well, that's what I mean. Like yeah. it started and off us all super, learning the, this, yeah. this long trend right. from like being super mean to the player to like today where we're less mean. Yes. Right? Yes. And we have been, it's been a, a industry wide learning process. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is another way in like FTL, we're like, no, we'll be mean to the player, it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, again, like the, uh, I'm still trying to write, find the right metaphor, but like uh, game design is like, you know, when you squeeze a balloon, you know, you like you squeeze one part and then something else pops. Oh, yeah, up. for like, sure. Like, yeah. like even if it's like, oh, we got to be really nice to the players, at some point that'll be overdone yeah. and we'll need something to come back and be like, yeah. no, we need some consequence, we yeah. need permanence, we need yeah. like, you know, we need to allow the player to fail, right? And um you know, you never, this is, this is why these discussions are great. Like it's hard to. And you can have them forever and yeah. not come up with a, with a correct one, a yeah. correct answer. Yeah. So, you know, one game I would kill to have them stick on do into, um, is uh, slay the spire. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be fair. Yeah. Like there's, it seems like it's just like, there's no reason not to, because you had your cards, you know exactly what's going to happen. And there's almost always a the correct way to do the cards in order. And anytime you end up doing like, Oh, I should play that card first. It just, it. it just feels, yeah. it's just, I feel cool. bad. I've been playing a lot of another mobile, um, game. That's a card deck builder thing. Yeah. Dawncaster. And regularly I wish there was an undo. Yeah. Because yeah, just something stupid, like, Oh, that card was supposed to come after that yeah. one. And those are the mistakes. You make them in the breach as well. And letting the player correct that is different. It's hard to, to, to tease out punishing the player for making decisions sure. that were tactically wrong right. versus decisions that were, oops, I did this too yeah. quickly. And you can't give them, no, you have unlimited undo for your oops, but that if you make a bad tactical, right. you can't. Because yeah, they can't actually to... check with the player on why they made their mistake. Yeah. That, that's why I do think it, definitely you should not let them go back to the term before the previous one. Like that seems like that's a pretty good line where once you fair. get into that territory, like you're, you're getting into real issues. Yeah. Of course, there's only four turns, but <laughs> still. That's the thing. You've still allowed half the battle then. Like, yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's weird. All yeah. right. Well, I think we kind of we kind of cut up to the present, basically. So one thing, I, one thing I like to ask, kind of at, at, at the end of these, is um, why did you, you know, why why have you devoted your career you know, to making games? Like, why are you doing this? I ask myself that all the time. Okay. I don't have an answer. <laughs> I often think about how. Um, I've thought about it way back when I was first getting the games. I remember having a conversation um, like in a bar about, and my, I think my grandfather brought it up once as well, like why games? Like you, you're a decently smart person. You can be working on like some sort of technology that can sure. help people like in like meaningful ways, like medical tech or something. Right. Um, I mean, I, I knew I didn't want to go into a programmer making like weapons and do a military sure. side. Right. Um, and I, I, was, I was definitely not on that end of things, but it's not like I went the other way where I'm purely altruistic and, yep. and trying to do something to save everyone. Um, and I don't know, I often wonder if it was even the right <laughs> choice to go down this path. Um, there are, you get a lot of wonderful moments where I get emails from people who are struggling and say how much FTL or End of the Breach has been important to them. Yep. Um, and help them through X or Y period of their lives and stuff. And it's always amazing to get those. It's not something I think of what 
we do because of that. Like every day I don't wake up thinking, gotta make entertainment for the um, poor suicidal teenager. <laughs> Tragic. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's something that at least I feel like it's not a complete frivolous pursuit right. to make silly spaceship and robot games. Yeah. Um, and then outside of like the, the, the grander philosophy of why we do anything, um, I like games. Like I, I find the mechanics of games fascinating. I love, as mentioned before, I love reading game board game rules is a delight to open up a brand new board game and dig through the rules and consider the systems and the mechanics and how they interlock and playing games for the same reason. And then getting to, create those systems and mechanics and think about it and poke at it is a delight. Um, and getting to do it the way that Justin and I do it, where we have the time and the freedom to explore. Um, we don't have the office politics. We don't have, I get to do it from my, my, my house. I get to see my kids yep. all the time um, is wonderful. So there's a lot of boons to, but you know, it, this has come from a position of extreme privilege to, to sure. have reached the position that that's why the industry is great for me. Um, is that we got stupidly lucky. We effectively won the lottery and, um, and now it's just a really enjoyable way to have a career. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I do think there is an aspect that's important for designers to think about where, you know, we all have kind of something to contribute to the world. Right. And oftentimes, the thing that that you know, sometimes you can be lucky that the thing that you're good at and want to do is something that makes other people happy as well, right? And um, you know, when you were and working at, at in China, you know, you were making games, but you weren't doing it in a way where you could. What's the right way to put this? You know, bring out the best part of yourself, mm -hmm. right? And. Um, like, you know, I think that's, that's the thing, you know, like if you, if you had chose some other endeavor that maybe is more obviously altruistic, you know, you could have been a part of a project that was, was, you know, doing something good for other people, but there's a good chance that for whatever, whatever reason, the way our brains are wired drove us towards games and we would only kind of be a, a bit of a fraction of ourselves without that. At least that's how I kind of feel. Um, is that why you make games? I, I think so. Yeah, like I just feel like, um, like this is the thing I was kind of meant, born to do. Yeah, meant to do. Like and nothing else kind of flows so naturally, mm -hmm. you know. And um, you know, it's it's. I mean, a lot of people will. I've asked this question a lot, and a lot of people they just can't. They, they say they say like they can't stop themselves, right? They can't. They can't imagine doing anything else, right? Like, and that's often the thing I you know when people ask me about getting into games. Like that's something I, you know, it's sort of a very direct question. Like, um, it's, it's, it's only gonna, I mean, it's a big industry. There's a lot of different things you can do to contribute, but like, if you want to do the thing that you're imagining was, I want to lead a project. I want to, you know, I want to make a game that really changes things. I'm like, it, it's only going to happen for you if there's like, if you wouldn't, there's nothing that you could stop you from doing this, right? Like you, you would do this, even if you were like, you can't do it professionally, you would still like, find there are, to do you, that. yeah, I'm not sure I would. <laughs> Um, I, I've tried, I did hobby development in college yeah. and, and stuff. I absolutely did. Um, and even when I was working at 2K, before I quit, Justin and I actually made a couple little small things. Yeah. Um, but I think now, I don't know if I would make games if I couldn't make a living out of it. Because, 
Well, I mean, it's kind of a bizarre question to ask yourself. It is like, a weird why question. Would, why would you make games? I mean, if but there are so many people who do hobby, and they're brilliant. Right. And, but I don't think I could be a hobbyist game developer. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, what I mean is, like, you don't. There's no reason for you to try to try to do that. I do understand what your point, though. Is like, like I'm almost very impressed by modders. Like, I, I love the modern yeah, community. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they've done amazing things with Civ three, with Civ four, with 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 off world and old world, and like I, I love those people. But I would never be a modder myself. Like that seems like a lot of work, a lot of very difficult work trying to understand someone else's system for something that. Like we'll always have a certain limited potential or, or audience or whatever. And so, yeah, I guess, I mean, it's, I, I understand that as well. Like, it's so like making games is hard. Yeah. It's such a challenging process and I'm too much. I think Justin is as well, but we're perfectionists yeah. in how much we will poke at something forever. And, um, I don't think I would be willing to put up with the emotional, trauma of going through the creation of of game development just for fun in my spare time yeah i do think that i i i maybe i'm kind of changing the way i would i would address this now because i i, I do think at the end of the day if i go back and remember you know i came into, i became a game developer because i needed a career right like if I had just been rich or something, would you have made games? Maybe I wouldn't have made games. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but I, I, probably not. It was more like, well, I gotta do something. Yeah, and so we're all forced in this system to go do something. Yeah, and so I I worked super hard early in my career, but that was because I was like, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be in the games industry, I wanted to be able to have the opportunity to do something that I find really rewarding inside yeah. that framework, um, but. But yeah, I mean, the thing that got me going was just just essentially the fact that like, yeah, it's a, it's I needed a job. <laughs> so um, yeah, it, it's. But I, I also though I even could be wrong about myself because I, my wife just thinks I'm wrong. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure my wife knows me in some ways better than I know myself. Yeah. And she thinks that I could never retire. She thinks if I <laughs> if I did retire, I would still be every once in a while going to make something because yeah. I wouldn't be able to stop it. Well, I would probably, I mean, when I retire, I'd probably just start making board games or something, right? Yeah. Because it'd be very, very easy. Have you ever done a board game? I, sort of. I did a, I did a car, Civ card game uh, for an anthology thing. It was, it was kind of fun, but I wish I, I needed like another full year of development to be, to be fun. Um, but uh, um, you're saying your wife disagrees with you. Yeah. And like, well, of the two of us, only one of us has started a hobby project and you know, kept working and, on it long yeah. enough. Like I've only ever done work that's that's for with the intention of this was this is this is part of a company. This is this is whatever there is. I'm I mean, I'm being paid for this, so um, you know, you you did it. <laughs> I guess it's less that I, I did do it, and more would I do it again though? And I'm yeah, not, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was as I talked about. It was a hobby project with like FTL, but it was also it had ulterior motives. Right. Like it was a resume builder. It was a kind at that time in my life. Like I feel like I was I was that kid who did all his homework, sure. studied for all the tests. Yep. Did everything. You just you do it. You don't think about it. You do well in school, so you can go to college. You do well in college, so you can get a job. You, and when you're doing a hobby project, it's gonna be something for your resume. Like it was everything was focused on that, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, obviously, it turned out pretty well in many ways, but I, I'm not sure if that's actually the right way to approach things. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, just a pure art for the sake of art um, is something I've had shockingly little experience with. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> 
Well, this is a, you know, this is a, a weird, it's a commercial field and it's an artistic field, you know, yeah. like all these things are all mixed up together. We do. There's a lot of games out there that are art for the sake of it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, I really respect that. Like, yeah. It's really cool to see what they do. And then it changes what they can make. There's a, t I have to make commercial games. Like that's just a, a constraint that I, I don't think about very much, but it absolutely affects the type of games I think I'm going to make. I don't think it does affect, I think Justin and I genuinely make the games we want to make right. without um, considering the commercial aspects. Right. Um, but I think obviously we come from a place that our design aesthetic and interests lie in what is commercial anyway. Yeah. You like games that have sold. So. It's, it's a happy um, yeah. Venn diagram there. So I can't complain. I'm sure um, I mean, there are thousands of developers out there who are making passion projects that they care about that won't find financial success because they don't happen to fall into what people consider a game. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, ideally, as a game developer, you got to figure out a way to make a game that you're good at making, you want to make, and that people want to buy. Yeah, I think Derek you had the... Yeah. Yep, yep. It's yeah, directly, the Venn, directly from Derek Yu. Triple Venn. Yep, thing. absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. I think this has uh, turned out really well. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. All right. And, uh, interesting. Oh, wow. There's two minutes left.